All right, we're all back on. All we're right, perfect. Live now, so. Um, so I'm joined today by uh, Jack and Ish, um, and I guess just to kick it off, Jack, you've been on here before, but I'll, I will have both of you guys give just a brief intro about yourselves and like what you're up to right now. So Ish, you can start. Oh damn! Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm Ish, known Jack, known uh, Clay, um, went to the University of Toledo, did my bachelor's in civil engineering, uh, worked in underground infrastructure industry, um, did like entrepreneurship for a year after that, and now I'm going to do my master's in the fall, so August, and uh, just doing some landscape architecture uh, internships, and that's actually what I'm going to be doing for my master's as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, Abrahamic faith, I guess it's appropriate to say I'm, I might be the Muslim in the group, um, <laughs> unless someone else is, is, and they don't want to share or tell anybody. Um, but, um, yeah, super hyped to be here on the coyote cast. Right on. All right, Jack, you got it. Yeah. So I've been on here before a couple months ago and I, was a PhD student. I quit my PhD program and I'm transferring to uh, another school. So I guess you can't really say I quit the program. I, I quit one program and transferred to another just um, because of departmental stuff. And my main area of research is history of philosophy and mainly the ancients and medievals, but do a little bit of everything. So theology, not really my specialty, but you know, we're going to, we're going to have a good time today, talk about some stuff. And I think this was inspired by just seeing a lot of the recent dialogue in the media, you know, Jordan Peterson had a conversation. Uh, there's been a lot of Catholic conversations, interfaith dialogues between Catholics and Muslims. And so, uh, Ish and I wanted to do a little bit of a dialogue in that spirit. Yeah, that kind of leads us Absolutely. into it, but yeah, Ish sent me a video between Jordan Peterson, and you're going to have to remind me. What was the other guy's name? Hamza Youssef. Hamza Youssef. So, yeah, I thought the video was really interesting, particularly like the back 30 minutes where it was kind of like a comparison of um, Islam and then Christianity and Judaism. So, yeah, like you said, none of us are theologians or necessarily have the greatest depth of knowledge, but I think we have some pretty good content prepared. Um, and honestly, I usually don't even roll with notes, but we do have notes today. So let's go ahead and do the topics I want to cover are the Trinity and Christ. And if we lead into them with one or the other um, and look at the comparisons of that and basically each of the three, or maybe specifically Islam and Christianity. Um, and then we had a few other just basic comparisons between the two. And then I kind of want to cover um, the liberal arts tradition and then virtue ethics and how um, those apply to both of the religious doctrines. So Ish, I think you dropped in some of these quotes in the introduction, maybe just to frame us up, um, pick maybe one or two of those and kind of read through it as a starting point and then we'll kind of head into um the trinity or yeah, christ I'll, 
Yeah, um, absolutely. No, so yeah, I think notes is really good for topics like these, um, especially because my background isn't in like these uh, sciences. Um, so it's almost like necessary for me to come back to something that is written. Um, so I don't kind of like wander off with my own opinions and thoughts. Um, but yeah, um, two verses when we were preparing for this really uh, stuck out to me. I think um, as the Muslim faith, we have uh, a very strong emphasis on interfaith dialogue in our tradition. Um, it's in many places in the Quran and many places in terms of prophetic traditions that we are commanded to uh, 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 have dialogue specifically with people who are people of the book. So we're, we're commanded to call everyone to, to our faith, but people of the book have a specific category because uh, they share um, a common father, you know, title of the podcast, Abrahamic Faiths. Um, so two verses that I kind of quoted is, we are Christians. Oh, no. You will find the nearest of them in affection to the believers who say, we are Christians. That is because among them are priests and monks because they are not arrogant. And then the other verse that stuck out was, oh, people of the scripture, come to a word that's equitable between us and you and that we will not worship except Allah or God and not associate anything with him and not take one another as lords instead of Allah. So this is obviously in Arabic and it's being translated. Um, but the, the, the message in, in both of these is that the closest people that Muslims, you know, where there should be the, the closest alliance in terms of faith from all the faiths, uh, world faiths that there are in the world, Christians and Muslims are, uh, should be the closest uh, to one another in like in friendship and camaraderie. Um, and then the other verse, it's it's pretty much calling people of the scripture, Jews and Christians, and uh, inviting them to speak on common grounds, you know, to speak with a common language and speak on ter common principles to hopefully arrive to a similar conclusion um, in terms of revelation, faith, and prophecy. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, the roots are very similar. Um and then without diving too deep into the history, there's been lots of years of conflict, um, lots of debates back and forth, uh, violence between the different groups. So, yeah, there is a lot of commonality to be found there. Um, so let's go ahead. Maybe and then maybe to, maybe I'm going to add some additional context to to like these verses. Um, I'm not sure if these specific verses were revealed um, at the specific time, but during the first 10 years of prophecy when islam surfaced on the on the earth um the, the the earliest muslims they actually had to travel to abyssinia to escape persecution from the polytheists in mecca um and the place that the prophet he instructed them to go to was abyssinia and it was a christian it was a christian kingdom and there was a christian king um so uh, uh them Christians were one of the very first people to accept Muslims from all the world traditions to accept Muslims and offer them a protection and uh, security. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, that's just, I think, a very important backdrop. Um, maybe because we can advance or go back to like you mentioned, like violence, we can talk about the Crusades and maybe other times in, in history where there's violence between Muslims and Christians. But if you look at the earliest interaction between Muslims and Christians, um, it was very uh, hospitable and uh, uh, mutual, I guess, if that's the right word. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Because in some of the selected readings you did have, there is like 
large periods of time, or at least like places on earth where they did very peacefully coexist and worked and lived with each other. So I think that was good to bring that back in. Um, yeah, let me make a comment about the, uh, let me make a comment about that. So I think this is, it's important to also draw attention to what the Catholic church's official statement is. And in the catechism, it says that the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham and together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. And that's going to be in the context of uh, Lumen Gentium. And so there are some distinctions in the surrounding passages between what the, exactly that means. Um, but the main idea here is that it is Catholic doctrine that Muslims, Jews, and Christians do worship the same God, although they're going to differ on the person of Christ. And I think this is pretty important to know because, you know, a lot of online dialogues about Islam, Christianity, et cetera, are just uh, pretty ridiculous. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty useful to point out what the church's teaching is um, officially. And um, I also think that it's really important to preface this by saying that you know, any look at systematic Islamic Arabic philosophy is going to be, uh, it's worthwhile. I mean, you get a lot of people on the internet I've seen on YouTube, Reddit, Twitter, etc. even in, in talking to people in person who think that Islam is kind of just like some sort of other Mormonistic cult type thing. And that's, that's not, that's just not the case. I mean, it is first and foremost, uh, a rationalistic, systematic presentation of revelation. I think even just a cursory glance at any of the Islamic philosophers like Avicenna is going to really demonstrate that. <clears throat> I, I know you're big on Avicenna, Jack, and uh, I, you probably know more than me, but uh, feel free to uh, uh, illuminate the room. Yeah, maybe elaborate on that. But one, just before you say that, I guess what popped to my mind is it's it's interesting to try to tease out like millennia of cultural associations and so much like rich culture that's behind like all of these religions are formed by people and so there's a lot of culture informing this so kind of like maybe trying to pull apart the culture from the theology or the scripture um, which is challenging to do but I think that can be sort of beneficial but go ahead and you say Abyssinia I say that correctly. A Avicenna. Yeah, his, his Latin name is Avicenna. His Arabic Avicenna. name is Ibn Sina. Yeah. So, okay. So I'll give a, just a, like a, maybe a 60 second presentation of kind of my understanding of the Islamic tradition from what I've gained in just cursory reading of the literature. So I see the um, Islam as a pinnacle of this deductive rationalistic system that's actually formed in sort of opposition to Christianity's historical miracle claims. So the way that I have seen Islam presented by specifically Averroes and Avicenna is that Islam purports it, or it, or it um, claims that its followers, its believers don't have to believe anything non-rational or mysterious. So Avicenna has a completely deductive system based on syllogism from first principles all the way down to uh, how he worships the imam or how, how he um, trusts in the imam and the caliphs, etc., and so it seems to me that really the way I would see Islam is on a spectrum where you have Christianity on one side, 
being based primarily in a lot of historical miracle claims like the resurrection. And in the middle ground, you have Judaism. And then on the other side, you have Islam, which has maybe one miracle, which is the Quran itself. I think that's in Surah 2, maybe somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that Islam is kind of like a it can be very viewed as this philosophic system that's deduced from reason. And, you know, some scholars who seem to agree with me on that would be Lloyd Gerson up at Toronto, who told me that he thinks that a, a neoplatonic kind of conception of God is very, very compatible with Islam. So that's kind of the way that I have, I have I've found Islam to be presented. And so the, the argument that I would say for people who are interested in Islam, the argument for Islam is to kind of see it as like a move from, okay, you have such thing as a God, some sort of first principle, and then God has to reveal himself. And the simplest revelation would seem to be in the Quran, since it posits no extra mysteries like the Trinity, etc. So I think that seems to be what the main kind of gist of an argument for Islam would be uh, kind of the starting point of it. Well, I, I, I would maybe, I, I wouldn't necessarily wholesale disagree with um, that entire notion. I mean, I think it's a very unique um, perspective. I, I, I don't, I mean, I feel like I'm flattered or almost like very appreciative with the, the notion because um, a lot of times Islam gets the, gets flack as being radical or just like unhinged and uh, very haphazard um, faith. Um, so to, to kind of see in that there's, there's a systematic way of thinking is, um, I think it's a wholesome, uh, perspective. Um, I, I, I will say though, that in, in the way that Islam is systematic, I think we can also trace that systemization or that, that rationalization tracing back all the way back to, to Abraham. And if, if you go into the Quran, um, and I don't have, we don't, we don't have these verses in our notes cause I didn't expect that we would actually take this path, but, um, there's a story in there, and I believe it's it's also in Surah 2, or chapter 2, where Abraham is presented as asking uh, uh, all these questions about who is God, right? So he looks at the sun, and he's like, the, the, the sun can't be my God because the sun sets, right? And he's like, oh, the sun, uh, the moon can't be my God because the moon, uh, it you know, it eventually, the day starts and the moon goes away. So, uh, um Abraham is like doing this deductive reasoning of trying to know who is God, right? And he's looking about all of these gods around him. And you have to understand the context of Abraham. He's someone who's living in a polytheistic society, um, from my understanding, Babylonian um, at the time. So he's comparing, he's doing comparative religion um, at the time. And he, he reaches, reaches the Islamic notion of God in that there's nothing that could be like onto him. So we have this principle in, in the Quran that says, Laysa kamithlihi shayt. Or another place, uh, um, we say, um, it's towards the, the back of the Quran, but it, it's the same concept, that there's nothing like, like unto him. That anything that you try to imagine to be God uh, uh, through your own restricted time and space, it's never going to be God. Um, and uh, so I, I would attribute this, this notion that Islam is not necessarily a new faith, but uh, repolishing and reigniting uh, the same energy that um, Abraham and many prophets before him tapped into. Does Islam take the Torah as scripture? So, so like we the say Old Testament, the Jewish 
scriptures? So I'll, I'll pull the verse from the Quran, and because I, I always feel like that the best the best way to cite to speak about Islam is through you know the texts, right? Versus my own opinions on on the matter. So the Quran says. Uh, uh, so forgive my my poor recitation but uh, pretty much what it's saying that uh, this book there's nothing like it and then it goes into who are the believers like the people who believe in the book what are they also do they believe in they believe in the day of judgment uh, uh, they believe in the books. And then it says that we as Muslims, we have to believe as a uh, pillar of creed that we believe in the books that came before us and the one that is being revealed right now. So when we say that we believe in the Torah and we believe in the Bible or the gospel, uh, we're saying that we believe in them in their original revealed form, that these uh, uh, books they were uh, uh, the source in which people were able to connect with God and to know God's will. But as we move forward into our modern era where there's new challenges and uh, there's new opportunities, uh, this faith, the final revealed faith, is the one that we're meant to use to address um, the very human concerns that, that we have in our time. So we, won't, we wouldn't say that we pray like, you know, Jews during the time of Moses, or we won't say that we pray like Jesus, or we had uh, um, the same laws. Although if you dig into the Bible and Torah, there are very strong similarities. Uh, there, there is a little bit of a different um, uh, things that God has asked of us that we, uh, that we believe to, to follow through the Quran. I hope that answers the question. I kind of jumped around in, in that response a little bit. Yeah, that I think that addressed it pretty well, and then it brought up like infinite points for me. But um, maybe just to lead us into sort of where we're going. So, how would you say Islam handles the Gospels? As in, does handles, that question make sense? Like in terms of like how do we use it in our um, in our own tradition? Yeah. Maybe I could I could frame it frame it kind of like a, in an argumentative form. So it, it seems to me that that Islam takes the Jewish and Christian scriptures, the holy books, to be authoritative, but also tries to argue that they have been corrupted in some sense. And so a, an example of this would be the Book of John proclaims that Christ is 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 divine, and so. If you have a Christian scripture, scriptural text that proclaims that Christ is divine, then the Muslim would come back and have to argue, okay, well, either one, it doesn't proclaim that, or two, the text has been corrupted. And because it seems pretty clear that in the Gospels, Christ is uh, presented as a divine figure, the Muslim will have to affirm that the text somehow has been corrupted. That seems to me to be the, the Islamic take on the Gospels. Yeah, so I wondered, so that's that was a much better way of framing that. So what scripture from the previous books would be taken to be revealed scripture that is not corrupted? Or like, how do you 
how would you know which? Um... Yes. Yes. So um, uh, obviously, I think that every every chapter in the Torah and every chapter in the in the Bible are unique, right? Very similar in terms of how every chapter in the Quran is unique, and there's a context of not just when those when those verses were revealed, but even the story in terms of how they're transmitted to us today. Um, so I, I don't want to also say that everything in the Bible is corrupted or everything in the Torah is corrupted, but uh, by studying very select verses in these texts, we can uh, um, find reasons, not through the Quran, not by using the Quran to disprove the Bible or the Torah, but using parts of the Bible uh, to prove or disprove other parts of the Bible. Because I think it's important to look at these texts mm. holistically and comprehensively and, and with a very balanced approach um uh, so and 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 to say um to also say that i also want to add that um when we say that the the, the bible and the torah are are from god uh we say in our quran and our tradition that god is admitting that i sent these books and i've sent these prophets so um, God is not saying he has any accountability in terms of things that um, people who are part of these faith communities uh, who erred or uh, made poor decisions. And the difference is, and, and this is what we say as Muslims about the Quran, and Jack kind of alluded to it in terms of it being a miracle. Um, God says in the Quran, I don't have the verse memorized, and you know we can obviously fire away verses all day long, you know, after the, the podcast, but says that God is going to be the sole protector of this book, that he's no longer leaving the, the room for any potential error in translations or transmission of, of our Holy Scripture that maybe previous uh, texts that were sent uh, were susceptible to. Okay, that's More interesting. So yeah. I, I think this is a good good place to talk about <clears throat> one thing. So it's called. So I, I wanted to mention, bring up Aristotle's Topics. So this Aristotle's Topics is a book about the rules of discussion and debate. It's about a hundred mm. so pages long. There's there's a lot going on in there. But if you if you flip through it, you can find a ton of useful stuff. And one of the things that that this really brings up is how exactly arguments proceed. So to flesh out an example before we get abstract about the point that Ish just mentioned there, um, that last thing you said about, um, what was the, I forgot, what was the last thing you said about, so you said something about looking at text holistically, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Comprehensively, so, so, yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me that, oh, and yeah, so that and then um, God being the, Allah being the sole protector of the book. So it seems like these two things are really, th these are going to be where there's a dispute that arises between the Christian and the Muslim. So for one, taking that that latter part or that former, for the, the Muslim to make the case that the gospels have been corrupted, they're going to have to, or the Torah, whatever, they're going to have to, it seems to me, rely on some sort of exegesis from outside sources or rely on what the Quran says. And if the Quran, if they're going to rely on what the Quran says, then they're already going to have accepted the Islamic tradition. Yes. And so they're going to be kind of arguing within the Islamic tradition. Yes. And so that's yes. kind of like a circular argument, but it also is not in a sense that it allows someone to shift the debate to whether or not Islam is true in the first place. 
And the second yes. point that God being the sole protector, this is really interesting because there's a parallel debate, a kind of parallel debate going on right now in Christian domains about young earth creationism. And um, so what's interesting about this is that you can, you can try to bring up contradictions in the Quran. So you can say, for instance, that the Quran, it's in Surah 4, I think, talks about Jesus not being killed on the cross. Mm. And I don't think there's a single biblical scholar that actually accepts that claim. And the claim seems to be historically derived from some Gnostic gospels, like the gospel of Barnabas and um, the uh, gospel of Peter, I think. And so what you get here is you get kind of an argument that runs like this. Well, the Quran says that Jesus wasn't killed on the cross and the Quran is protected by Allah, but historical scholars seem pretty unanimous in agreeing that Jesus was killed on the cross. So are we going to have to reject the Quran or are we going to have to reject the scholarship? How are we going to do this? And so it seems like that that is one potential route of uh, kind of kind of arguing against the Quran. But but that also parallels a debate going on in Christianity where some people have tried to argue that young earth creationism is revealed, whereas science contradicts that. So what are we going to do? Are we going to reject the science? Are we going to reject the holy book? So, I mean, I guess my point with this is that the nature of the conversation is uh, is pretty important. And we need to keep in mind kind of how the arguments proceed, whether or not we are, because it seems to me that your your response could be, okay, well, the scholarship is simply wrong because I have already accepted Islam. Mm. Um, and so then the debate would shift to whether Islam is correct in the first place. And so we just got to keep in mind where the debate shifts over these topics. I think that's pretty important in online conversation as well. I'll, I'll follow your lead because I think you have a, a better, tighter, uh, grip on some of these topics, but I think what you raise are some very, very valid points. So um, I'll, I'll follow your lead, Jack. Which, uh, what things should we, should we focus on um, in terms of uh, talking either about the Bible or talking about, I guess, like Muslims and the Quran and how we view the, like the Bible. Um, so you're, you're, you're driving. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, why don't you why don't you tell for our audience? Tell us because um, I'm sure nobody is. Very few people have actually looked at the Quran or Islamic doctrines. What do Muslims believe about Jesus's crucifixion? So the the, crucif the crucifixion isn't explained in full detail in in the Quran. I, I don't think we have like a grand narrative um, in terms of the in terms of crucifixion. Um, what I what I was taught about the crucifixion. Um, was always things outside of the Quran. Um, so we, we, we have the birth. Our, our birth narrative is very, very similar to what's in the Bible. Um, but the crucifixion, as you said, you, I think you, you referenced it already. Um, we say that, that uh, uh, Jesus was not crucified. I'm paraphrasing. I kind of have the verses in, in Arabic in my head, but I'm paraphrasing here. Um, Jesus was not crucified. Uh, rather, it was made... Um, appeared or it was uh they thought he was crucified so the narrative this is outside of the quran um we say that uh, jesus was sitting with his disciples and uh, uh jesus knew that the romans were going to come and capture him um and they wanted to crucify him so jesus asked his disciples and asked them who is willing uh to take my place on the cross 
And a very young man, um, from what I know about the story, he's like in his early 20s. Um, a very young man, he, he, raised, he volunteers uh, to take Jesus's place. And Jesus, he responds to the man and he's like, you're, you're incredibly young. Uh, uh, you know, you have your whole life ahead of you. Would anybody else be willing uh, to take my place? So this question proceeded two or three times. And then it came to the final decision that this young man would take Jesus's place and uh, suffer on the cross. And one of the miracles of Jesus is he actually uh, took his appearance and casted it upon this young man um, in order for the Romans to be deceived that they captured uh, uh, that they captured and, and, and killed Jesus. And then we say that in the Quran that uh, Jesus has been raised from the earth. Um, he's been raised from the earth. And I'm not sure like if he's like in which heaven or just directly sitting next to God. Uh, but uh, we have this belief that he's still alive today. Um, and when the time that God decides on, he will be sent back to obviously usher like, you know, I guess the second coming and, you know, day of judgment, all these other things that um, we can get into. But um, so, that's uh, the narrative. But that narrative is outside. Most of it is outside of the Quran. But the central core principles, he wasn't crucified. It was made appear to, to them that the people that he was crucified and the last thing is that he was raised from the earth. Those three things are in the Quran. But all those details about the boy and stuff, that's, that's not in the Quran. So is there a narrative about Jesus' death then in the Quran? No. All we know about Jesus' death are, are prophecies of, of, of how he will die at the end. We believe that Jesus will, will, have, will get married. He'll be, he'll, be, he'll be married. He'll have kids. And he will die a natural death. Um, so do you know if it's like a resurrection um that has occurred with jesus or more of like an ascendance without a death i would say ascendance without a death we, he was okay. never like his heartbeat never stopped or his consciousness was un, wasn't separated from his body interesting yeah that would, that would be like a major like deviance between it's very interesting yeah, I can kind of flesh this out because so so my 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 area is kind of history of ideas. So this is um Ish is right. So if I remember my Quran's upstairs, but if I remember it's like Surah 4, 157 is the verse in the Quran where this is the crucifixion's a bit um described. I'm not sure where the assumption is described, but these ideas are um found in some gospels. Like I mentioned, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Barnabas. In the Gospel of Basiades, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, so these are not New Testament canon. These Gospels are... Are, are these the Nag Hammadi ones or are these the Gnostic, Gnostic Gospels. texts? Okay. Yeah, these are, these are certain Gnostic texts. So they're not accepted by the church and they're not accepted by pretty much any scholar as authoritative. Um, and so this is where the, the kind of debates began between Muslims and Christians and Jews. So one of the things that this leads to is an argument where you can formulate it kind of like this. Um, if the Quran proclaims that Jesus wasn't crucified, but it's historical documentation for that, and it's um, kind of corroborating evidence in not only, I should, I should say like historians like Josephus and Tacitus, if those are kind of off, then it seems that we have 
an error in the Quran. Um, and so that would, that's probably one of the reasons why that is one of the reasons why I do not accept it, why I'm a Catholic, not, not a Muslim. So I, you know, if, if you were to ask me, Jack, in terms of like, why, why I choose to be Muslim, I, I would, <laughs> hopefully my, my Muslim imams don't come for me uh, for saying this, but I wouldn't say the primary reason of why I accepted Islam or submitted to God uh, was because of the Quran, actually. I would say that the reason I submitted was because of the character and the personality and the truthfulness of the messenger. Mm -hmm. um, uh, very much similar to you. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm born here in the, in the U.S. My first language is English. Um, I can speak Arabic very mildly. I can read the Quran very mildly. Um, it's very, very, um, it's a very rich um, and dense text. Um, but I, I would say learning about who the prophet is, right? If you're, if you're sincere in knowing whether or not you want to accept or reject Islam, I think the best way to know is by reading the very simple story and narrative and learning about the struggles and the sacrifices and the, 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 um, I guess you can even say at times the, the brilliance or the genius of, of Muhammad um, as a leader, as a father, as a friend. Um, these are the things that kind of melted away at my heart in terms of compelled me to accepting Islam. Um, and I would say the Quran was something that came with time. Um, I didn't uh, uh, find myself able to navigate it very easily. I think you even mentioned it in the notes how it's, very, it's a very jumpy text. You don't just, it doesn't read like the Bible. Um, that, that's something I struggled with my faith for quite some time. Um, but you know, I, I don't want to deviate from, from the conversation about the Quran, but I, I will admit for most Western readers and, uh, uh, Anglophone speakers, um, I can very much emphasize, uh, em empathize with, uh, the struggle of seeing that the Quran is an authoritative text. Yeah, it's a very Rousseauian point. I think we've talked about this before, coming from the tradition that you you um, grew up in. I mean, I'm again, I'm sympathetic to that argument. Uh, Rousseau lays that out in the Emile somewhere. Um, but okay, so do you want to do you want to talk about the differences or the similarities? First? <laughs> we've kind of gotten off into the differences, haven't we? I know, I know. Well, maybe we should let's well, let's jump back to a similarity. Yeah, I just wanted a like kind of like a sweeping there. So like if it's taken as like almost like a three part book first, because I honestly have very little um, understanding of Islam or the text or even like what the general like narrative arc of it is. So if it is somewhat loosely connected narrative arc, what is like, what is the connection between the new Testament and the Quran? Like what even links the two of those together? Before we, so and then I, we'll get back into similarities. Um, wait, so are we in similarities right now or are we in differences right, right now? Well, I guess you could probably flesh out quite a few similarities by saying like, what is the link between yes. New Testament yes, and yes. Quran? Yes. So, um, I, you know, the first verse I mentioned, I think, in the conversation is we, uh, you'll find the nearest of them in affection to the believers, a.k.a. the Muslims, um, those who say we are Christians. Right, um, that is because they're among our priests and monks. So I, I think the um, the connection between the New Testament and and the Quran is uh, um, we have this uh, deep reverence for prophets, right? And the um, our love for them is intense, 
right? So obviously, I mean, we don't have someone who's Jewish here, and I, and I, I kind of feel bad because you know I think it's appropriate for someone who's Jewish to also speak up for their faith um, in this context. But Jews, they obviously they don't take Jesus as a prophet, right? Um, we we Muslims we do we take Jesus as a prophet, and we take Muhammad as a prophet, um, and we view Muhammad and Jesus as brothers. Um, brothers in that they carried the same message of one God, of monotheism, of submission to God. And um, I think it's important to recognize, and I'm not sure if this is a concept that we were taught through the Quran, but we believe that we are spirits, that you, uh, Clay, Jack, myself, Ish, we're all spirits uh, traveling on a, a material or a bodily journey. Like we're, we're spirits in a body, right? That we view ourselves in that way. So um, I think one of the most beautiful things that I find in Christians, and not just Christians today, but even going back, you know, for the many centuries of Christians, that they're very much spiritual people. They very much focus on joy, happiness, uh, peace, good goodness to your neighbor, right? And obviously, like you know, we briefly mentioned about crusades and holy war and uh, taking back Jerusalem um, as a a very uh, real uh, time in history that happened between Muslims and Christians. But I'd say the overwhelming narrative that I see from Christians isn't just crusades. I see a lot of that good family traditions, uh, um, once again, being good to your neighbor, kindness, trust, honesty. Um, that's something that I think that was ingrained to me, even be, living in a Christian society. I mean, we don't call America a Christian society, but like everybody and their cousin is a Christian here. So um, I see that through and through. Um, and I know Muslims from overseas, they view, you know, uh, Americans as like, you know, they just want to carpet bomb us kind of uh, uh, narrative, but um, obviously they don't, they don't see it on the ground, like on person. Um, so I, I would say that, that is for, for, for me, that's what I see as the connection is I see Jesus as my prophet and I see Muhammad as my prophet. Um, and they're, they're both praying to the same God, just like Jack mentioned, um, as being an Orthodox Catholic uh, teaching. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good um, summary there. And so I guess we can, we can definitely would like to highlight this notion of God in the tradition. So here we are, we are friends to the ancient traditions and we're friends to Plato and Avicenna and Aquinas. We don't really, you know, Muslims and Christians, at least the Orthodox ones, don't seem to have any patience with this kind of really Western modernized notion of God as kind of like a sky daddy, to put it crudely. So uh, this is, this is, uh, this is something where I think that, that Muslims and Christians really, really need to start to, to bear down and, and hammer the, the culture and, and modernity with is this idea of God as being totally transcendent. Okay. So, so I can spell this out. Actually, I have a, I can spell this out with kind of an argument from Plotinus and then draw it back with a quick argument from the Christian tradition. So, you know, Plotinus is in Aeneid 5.5.6, he gives this argument where he says that God, or he calls it the one, generates everything. And so in his generation, which you can roughly think about it as creation, it's different, but just for now, think about it as creation. The one or God generates everything. And that includes form or determinate. So this phone has a form and it's like a determinate object. And so 
the principle here then that Plotinus uses is what generates X cannot itself be X. So, you know, the phone, if I generate the phone through a creative act or something, I can't itself be the phone. That would be uh, kind of absurd. So we get a subconclusion: the one is not form. But what is form? What is not form is not a determinate substance or thing. So the one is not a determinate substance or thing. And what is not a substance or thing is not a determinate being. So this one, or Plotinus's God, is not a being. And so the conclusion Plotinus draws is that the one giving rise to all being is beyond being itself. And so this is this is interesting, one, because this is super, super influential on Augustine. And Augustine even says that he totally agrees with this. Super influential on Dionysius, a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And super influential on Aquinas and Avicenna. And so I think we have to kind of sit back and think about what it means actually when we talk about God. We're not talking about something out there that we can quantify. We're not talking about something out there in space. We're not talking about some disembodied mind that floats around. What we're talking about is the generative cause or the first principle of all reality. And being the cause or the principle of all reality, it cannot itself be a member of that reality. And so this gets now gets really tricky because what you have is you have something, to use that term loosely, that is nothing at all like what we experience. And so now we can give a, a Plotinus gives a follow-up argument in Aeneid 6.9, and it's a, just a basic syllogism. And he says roughly this, language and thought always grasp things in terms of being. So we have this water bottle here, and if I'm thinking about it or if I'm talking about the water bottle, or anything else for that matter, I am thinking and speaking about a determinate, separable object. But as we've just talked about, God, or the one, is not a being. So it follows that language and thought simply won't be able to grasp what God is. And so once you meditate on this, and again, this has taken me, like, this is just the quick and dirty arguments, but this has taken me months upon months to kind of just reflect on, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. But once we start to think about this, we quickly realize that proving the existence of God only proves the existence of a radical mystery. And that, to me, is really where Christians and Muslims share a fundamental, fundamental truth, is that God is radically distinct from what we are, and that, in fact, is something so contrary to the modernist, secularist West and world that I think we have to be united in speaking of God reverently and in this kind of mysterious manner. And this is where Aquinas is super helpful to the Muslim tradition because Aquinas deploys a notion of analogy, very complicated philosophical idea, where we can actually speak about God in terms of uh, different analogies. And he also deploys, following St. Dionysius, a notion of remotion or negative theology. I'm not sure if Avicenna has this. I, I don't know about that, but he probably has something similar, or at least followers of his definitely did. Um, so because God is so radically different, radically transcendent, we can speak about him in terms of analogy, and we can speak about him in terms of what he is not. And I think that 
this is really one of the crucial, crucial similarities, again, to reiterate that point. But en- enough, of, enough of that complicated abstractions right there. Yeah, no, I, I love where we're going because I think we're talking about the nature of God. And obviously, we, we spoke earlier about like the differences between the Trinity and like this very strict monotheism. But I, I'm so glad to know that there's um, Catholic saints and uh, Christians who have this very firm belief that God is not anything that we can imagine or anything that is determinant. Um, I, I I will say something like as as anyone who's reading the Quran, and I mentioned earlier how once you get into like the 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 thick of the Quran, it's very difficult to go um, and uh, uh, connect the sentences and the verses into a coherent linear story. Um, I will say though that in, within every chapter of the Quran, with the exception of one. Um, God introduces himself by saying, uh, in the name of God, the most merciful, the especially merciful. That mercy um, in a world that I think, in, in an era that we live in, uh, where there's there's such a lack of mercy, God is introducing us, you know, reaching out his metaphorical hand and saying, I am the mercy, I am the, the most merciful um, that you can connect with. Um, and, you know... Uh, I don't know the, the the Christian introduction. Like, if you were to introduce God to somebody as a Christian, what was the first thing that you would introduce to somebody? Um, but I, I can imagine that Christians also have this very uh, soft and, and gentle understanding of who God is—not a wrath, wrathful or uh, punishing God that you know just wants to lash out because he had a bad day. Yeah, no, that's 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 good. I mean, both of the the, uh, the Christian, Jewish, and Islamic tradition all speak about God in terms of His effects in the world. So His love, His mercy, His creative act. We speak about those things. We make predications of God based upon those actions. And so this is exactly what I was talking about. Um, so this is an exact point that Aquinas makes in. Summa Contra Gentiles 114, and then I think it's in Summa Theologia, first part, chapter 13, um, question 13. So we speak about God in terms of, his, one way, in terms of his effects in the world. So if in the Quran and in the Christian tradition, we say, okay, God loves or God sustains us or God creates we then make those predications of God being love, God being the creator, sustainer, um, etc. And that is, in fact, how Aquinas thinks we come to know him is by using that we can't know because we God's a mystery. We can't can't know his nature, but we can know his effects in the world. And that is how we come to know, at least in a very, very vague sense, as Paul says, seeing through a glass darkly what what he is. I, I did. I did want to read this though. So th- this is really interesting. Let me. So this is a quote I found, and I forgot to read it about kind of what I was just saying. And I want to see if you agree with this ish. Go up. Go ahead. Okay. So this is a Catholic theologian named Jean Luc Marion. So he says the distinctive feature of modernity does not at all consist in a negation of God. Modernity is characterized in the first place by the annulling or the voiding of God as even a question. What then is found, what then is found set in play in a negation or affirm, let me ask you a question. What then is found set in play in a negation or affirming of God? 
So like a theist or an atheist. Jean-Luc Marion goes on to say, this isn't God as such, but simply an idol of God, which marks the conceptual system of modernity. And so it seems to me what he's saying is that a lot of discourse surrounding religion in the, in the modern West takes God as being this determinate object. And that is just contrary to what he really is. Uh, have you have you come across this in any of your dialogues? Because I certainly have. Well, I've definitely come across it with atheists. I mean, plenty of yeah, atheists. Yeah, would, they'll crack. Yeah, like that. And, um, but but I, but I'll also say that I I feel like unfortunately I think some Christians, um, out of maybe their own ignorance, kind of feed into that narrative, right? Um. I see, and I don't want to just you know say that this is something wrong with having the Christian community because I see the Muslim community falling into a similar error, and that we want to make Christianity cool, right? Or we need to make Islam cool, right? Um, and I think it really just it hurts our faith communities and it hurts the people of faith at the end of the day. Um, so you know when I see people like you know devout Christians or you know they portray themselves as devout Christians, you know posting pictures of Jesus like on a skateboard or surfing. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, creating funny TikTok videos. This is the way that we're going to bring our Christian brother and sister to faith. Um, I, I don't think that's that's working. Um, and I don't think it works in the Muslim tradition either to make, say, like, hey, like, you know, being Muslim is just like wearing a cool kufi and like eating fancy mi- Middle Eastern food. And that's what being Muslim is. And that's how you're going to win people to come back into their communities. Um so, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the, like, once again, like Charles Dawkins, all these people who are like, oh, you're, you're just worshiping your imaginary friend and you're, you're, you're worshiping like, uh, uh, you know, uh, old man in the sky, a sky daddy, like you said, um, I haven't, this is, this is why I like having you around as a friend, Jack, um, is because i I really find friends who are, or people who are very serious about their faith. Um, and they don't have these conceptualizations. So, um, I would say it's been very rare for me to find Christians who uphold, I guess, the Orthodox or the Catholic, I'm not sure which word I should use there, but, um, position that God is, I want to say like a holy mystery, but like he's, he's unfathomable. He he doesn't exist in our imagination. If I can jump in here. Go for it. Okay, so you basically framed it as modernity, the voiding of God. I guess what I would say... um, Let me me clarify. I I would say it technically, I see modernity as a reduction of God to a determinate thing. Yeah, and I think it's mostly sort of a loss of being able to connect to any sort of mystery or revelation, or even to allow the space of not knowing something or giving the space to maybe saying it's not within our grasp to reach out and know something, especially the way that you were referring to God. Um, I would say I hold a lot of similar conceptions of God too, or at least this is kind of going to lead us into the Trinity because I do think there have been definitely some like active, um, maybe incarnations or very like active effects of God throughout different scriptures. I would say like above um, maybe as God, the father or some sort of 
God that is outside of creation. Um, I do hold a lot of the same beliefs as the description that you shared earlier. Yeah, so let me jump in like a, a minute or so, and then we can get into the Islamic conception of the Trinity. Then I'll kind of deploy what I know about it. So I, I would, I would, I would say that notice what you just said there. So it, this is funny because it's so hard to escape it. But you said God outside of creation. What does that imply in our mind? It implies some sort of thing sitting outside of space and time, mm. and this is the direct result of a very, very often overlooked passage in Parmenides. So I, I highly suggest that people flip to Parmenides. It's, it's called Fragment B3. And in this Parmenidean fragment, Parmenides states that to think is to think being, and to be is to be intelligible. That's my, my interpretation of it. And so what he means here is that it is a necessary truth that in thinking, we are thinking about being. It's impossible to think non-being. Because when you try to think non-being, you picture some sort of thing with a boundary. To think non-being is just not to think at all. And to be is to be thought of or intelligible. It's an absurdity to say that there's an unthinkable being because in positing that, we've already thought about it. Mm. So it's just the fact of our condition, just a, 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 a horrible, maybe if you want to think about it that way, a kind of curse on our intellect that we have to think in terms of being because that necessarily means that we will always conceptualize God unless we're extremely careful. And even then we'll always conceptualize him as some sort of being. But I think this gives us great, great hope because we can in noticing this come back to this mysterious position and say, well, even my language can't capture how transcendent and mysterious and really beautiful God is. Yeah. Hmm. I basically, if, yeah, you, heard if you sit with it, you can sort of feel what you're meaning to say, but language doesn't conceptualize it at all. Yeah. And that's, that's why Dionysius. Yeah. That's, that's why Dionysius says that the mind ends in kind of a silence like a, a silent kind of, yeah. So to get back to maybe like where modernity, even like religious groups in modernity and what I see, I mean, I've basically been in non-denominational or Protestant denominational um, churches. And I think that we really hone in on specifically Jesus and the gospels or yeah, basically the new Testament, Jesus, Paul, um, and try to focus on the personal relationship that people can have like with God through Jesus. Um, and that a lot of that mystery of maybe God, the father or God, the creator or creation, um, we, because you can't conceptualize it. It's very difficult to speak to an audience about it or to hold dialogue about it. So I think maybe that is kind of where we've gone, maybe not necessarily off the tracks, but why we get stuck in a certain way of, of uh, relating to the scriptures. I will say something interesting that does come up in the Quran in terms of like interfaith dialogue in Christianity. So God makes a commandment or not a commandment, but he says, 
he's like speaking to Christians, he says, don't even say three, right? So um, I think we, we generally have a very uh, a similar uh, feeling or meaning of what, what we feel like when we, we, when we connect to God, like when we all go home and we worship and we're worshiping God, we're, we're more or less trying to connect to a, to a similar source. Um, but um, as Jack mentioned, our language is still incredibly essential in terms of how we convey meaning, right? And when we say something, we have to be very deliberate in terms of what those words mean in their normal context, um, or even in their traditional context. So if we're reciting the Bible or reciting the Quran, um, we shouldn't just have like this exegesis, like freestyle interpretation where we say like, well, you know, cool in our day and age means so-and-so. So let's try to apply that meaning. I guess they call it eisegesis you know, apply that meaning into the uh, uh, meaning in the Quran. Like, no, you have to look, okay, what does cool mean in the context of the Arabs or the context of the Romans or so on and so forth? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not sure how do we cross that bridge between what we feel like God is and how do we determine what is the best language to use um, to express um, who God is or what God is. I'm wondering. So made any sense. I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I get what you're saying. So in the, in one reason I think the Catholic tradition is so, so appealing is because there is a, 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 a tradition, a magisterium that, that helps you to make, helps you to understand the faith and interpret it. And so we have ecumenical councils that set down, dogmas that, and, and really the, the best picture I think for viewing this is to think that the Catholic Church has certain guidelines and you're free to interpret the text, but not cross those guidelines. So it's not telling you, the church isn't telling you this is the definitive meaning. It's saying this is not what the meaning is. Mm. And it's left, it's kind of, I've heard the expression that scripture is a playground. And that is, seems to me how Aquinas thought of it as well. So I'm wondering, is there is there a, a sort of tradition like that in Islam? Because I couldn't find any information about it, like a like a sort of type of council. I, I'm I'm not sure. How do you how does how does Islam view interpretation? So I always tell people Islam's um, our knowledge of our tradition is very similar to a work cited. Um, so when you ever like you're writing a paper. Uh, your English teacher or your professor wants you to cite other works, right? You can't just be pulling out these ideas from thin air. Um, you're obviously consuming information from the world around you. So uh, we believe Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, he is the walking Quran. So our understanding of the Quran is only valid if it, if it, uh, uh, if it manifested itself in the living example of the prophet. So how do we know who the prophet Muhammad is? Like, is it, is he just some fairy tale from, from the Arabian desert or were there people around him who documented, you know, his, his life? And obviously that's the former. Um, that's what we believe in. Um, and it's a very rigorous, uh, process. So we, we have six books of traditions. So if you look up Bukhari, if you look up Muslim, um, I think uh, Dawood, Tirmidhi, I don't have all the names of the books in my head, but all these books, they were to pass a very rigorous 
um, uh, I guess, like scraping of information from the companions around the Prophet Muhammad to to know who who he who he was, what he said, what he did, what he approved, what he disapproved, um, and through that compilation, you can begin to actually grade every tradition that was revealed or well, not revealed, but that was collected to say, um, was the transmitter a trustworthy person or did he have some attributes about that individual who we may not be able to rely on him 100%. So there's a grading in terms of how we measure the work cited of what Muhammad did and uh, of the Quran. And the thing is, like even the Quran, the way it's preserved is through a very systematic uh, method as it was used to collect information about Muhammad. Um, so these interpretations that we have, um, it was typically through, it's through a scholars, right? So in the Quran, it says, no, um, no, that's not, that's not a, a verse from the Quran. This is something that comes in hadith, but it says that the scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. So the people who have knowledge, the people who are educated and enlightened, who know, you know, language and logic and grammar, and they have the Quran memorized. These are the people who are able to speak with authority that this is what the Quran means and this is what it doesn't mean. So through many, many generations, through multiple times and places, uh, we know what is orthodox and what's canonical in mainstream Islam by cross-referencing these scholars um, and the opinions and conclusions that they made. So another way you can compare Islam is to cryptocurrencies, like, you know, blockchain, right? In that there's like a verification process that's happening over many times and places. Um, so obviously, yeah, you can come out with a very radical understanding of what the Quran is if you're not connected to scholars. And that's what, that's when you see like, you know, extremists in the backwaters of Iraq and Syria. Um, that's typically what's happening. That's what's going on um, is you have people who are not connected to scholars. Um, and, and it's a very deep, deep knowledge to go deeper and typically like, this guy looks, seems like a scholar or is Isha a scholar and he's just not telling us? Um, there, there's many, many layers in terms of getting down to know, and it's usually the scholars will say who's a scholar. It won't be like the layman who are saying like, oh, this is the guy, right? It's usually people who are also educated who are also in the circle to, to verify the, the, you know, the person if, if he's, if he's good quality or not. Can I turn More us back just for one second? Go ahead, um, so this one is sort of addressed to you, Jack, and then ish you can follow up from your understanding as well so i i'm just curious what your interpretation of so you lay out god as can only speak about god in analogy and what he is not so what are your interpretations of when humans actually interacted with god like be it through jesus or say moses receiving the tablets on sinai um what is your view on actual physical interaction or manifestations of um, a character of God? Yeah, so so this is where we, we get into some Christology. So the, the definitive, the teaching on Christ is that he, he's so, so let's, let's clarify what the church's teaching is. He's not, he didn't, he's not this like fusion of God and man. He has two distinct natures. So he has a human nature and a divine nature. Mm -hmm. And it seems pretty clear to me that he also has two wills and two minds. So a human 
mind and a human will and a divine mind and a divine, divine will. Um, so we can, we can talk about the arguments for that, but that's probably getting way too off topic, but that's just, that's the, the, the doctrinal teaching. Um, I think some people will quibble with the mind stuff that seems to follow from the two natures, but I'm not quite sure if it's officially definitively, like it's a dogma that he has two minds. Um, there's actually case. a lot of like in esoteric Christian traditions, there's a lot of commentary on that, even in, I guess the birth accounts of Jesus in different gospels are even slightly off and there's sort of some commentary on that, but so sorry to interrupt, keep rolling. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's true. I'm not, I'm not quite familiar with that, with that tradition, but, um, so in interacting with Christ, the apostles wouldn't have had a problem because they'd be interacting with his, his human nature. I barely know anything about the old Testament. So I'm definitely not the guy to ask there. My off the cuff answer would be that it's just, it, Dionysius wouldn't have a problem with this because he would just say that the burning bush is a theophany, like pretty much everything else. It's a manifestation of God in the world. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's, that'd be that big of an issue, but I'm sure you could raise some objections there. But in any case, the person of Christ. So this is, this is again, this is going to be probably the definitive disagreement between Muslims, Christians, and Jews and pagans. Um, is this this guy Christ? So, before you talk about the Trinity, which is a whole other ball game, <laughs> it's I, I don't think you can even speak about the Trinity without getting kind of clear on your Christology. So, to give you a brief example, I, I, I just learned this a few days ago, but Islam was originally seen by Christians as what they called Muhammadism, and they saw it as not a religion, but a Christological heresy, mm-hmm. which is, this is really, really interesting to think about because they, they saw it not as like a definitive breaking with the Christian tradition, but rather a kind of like subset of Christianity that was identical or almost identical with Arianism, which is a heresy in the Christian church that makes Jesus not divine, but kind of like a, a, a human procession from God. So this is why you get in some texts in early Christian fathers where they don't call Islam Islam, they call it Muhammadism. It's because they see it as like basically a heretical sect of Christianity and the heresy would be denying the divinity of Christ. Any, any, and if you want to comment, go ahead. I thought that no, was. Oh, no. I, I mean, like, I, I, I've always known the fact, but it always, it always makes me chuckle, like, to, to, uh, to, it's like, you know, to be perceived like that, or early Muslims, you know, back then being perceived as that, like, oh, they're Christians, but they're like, not Christians like us. I don't know. It's just, it's a very, I'm not sure if I want to use the word charming, but in a way, it, it is, um, kind of like how they they still in the same way like related with one another they're like huh you know you're still you're still kind of similar to me but you're a little different too so um it's just it's just funny i'll tell you what it's like it's when i go to egypt and uh people they see me they're like oh you look egyptian but you don't talk like an egyptian like your 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 accent's like messed up or your dress doesn't look like it's it's the same or you don't walk walk like like an an egyptian Oh God! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't like. I, I like people will say like I, 
I don't. I, I truly don't. Like, people will notice, like, I, I stand out on the street. They, like, because there's just a certain sway in terms of, like, how an Egyptian man, like, walks on the street. And I don't walk it. So uh, people can kind of, they can just get, like, just from the smell, man. They'll know. They're like, you're not from around here, are you? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Yeah, I was referencing the song, but that's interesting that there actually is a way that yeah. you walk like an Egyptian. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's been, I'm a little rusty with some of it, but I think a lot of the Old Testament manifestations of God, a lot of them are actually attributed to Jesus before he was incarnate in the New Testament. And I guess one of those stories you had written down, so we can touch this point, the differences in meaning between Israel and Islam, Israel meaning to struggle with God, Islam meaning submission, which I don't know much about that, but where the Israel name uh, came from is sort of a story of Jacob actually wrestling with an angel. And a lot of people have taken that to be uh, a manifestation of Christ before he was incarnate. Yeah, so I this is something that I, I I'm like I've always wondered about. Um, it seems in my experience, you know, moving from Protestantism to sort of atheism to sort of deism to Catholicism that, and even within Catholicism, that it, it's always been just a a struggle with metaphoric struggle with God. That's been the best way to describe my experience. Um, is me struggling with the scriptures and really just like gnashing my teeth when I come across hard problems in scripture, hard problems in philosophy. Um, and oftentimes also moral struggles saying like, why are you, wh why is this happening to me? Why am I called to do this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems that, that, that kind of cashing out my experience in terms of a struggle is just much more accurate than to say kind of a submission to God. Um, obviously, this isn't some sort of rigorous philosophic argument. It's just a kind of like experiential, like phenomenological one. Yeah, yeah that, more, that aligns with my um, experience as well. I don't know if you can maybe comment on the Islam or submission. No, so I'll, I'll say that we, we, as Muslims, we do have this uh, concept of struggle, but the struggle comes after submission. So once someone can attest to the truth, like when we say the shahada, like what, what the, the difference between someone who becomes a Muslim and anything else is whether or not he's able to testify that there is no God but God, or in Arabic, there's no Allah, no, there's no ilah, there's no God, lowercase g except for God, Allah, in, in Arabic, um, and that Muhammad is his final messenger. So once you've submitted to that, once you've submitted your will to this ultimate truth, um, everything after that is just is just struggle, that we're struggling in the path of God. And, you know, Fox News's favorite word, jihad, means just that. It means struggle. So, um, but the, the, the difference is, I, I think, when we, we're struggling, we already have a basic understanding of what we know is, is right and wrong. We know what our religion is. It's, it's complete. We, we say, in, it says in the Quran, uh, that like Allah has completed our religion, right? There's no more uh, um, 
like no more tools like i would say just tools that we need to to know what islam is it's 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 completed in that sense um but uh, um when we're struggling we're struggling towards god that the ultimate pleasure of paradise the ultimate pleasure that we are seeking as muslims is to meet god right it and not not god when i say jesus as god right because muslims don't believe that but god in terms of how he wants to reveal himself to humanity uh, once we enter, once we all enter paradise. Um, so kind of to go back to your earlier question, Clay, about like whether we conceptualize God or not and this, that, and the other, um, we, we believe that this mystery will be answered not, not on the day of judgment, not when Jesus comes, um, not when we are, our scales are weighed and uh, we, we will know who, what God looks like when we enter into paradise. And then God will be with us then. Um, whether or not it's in determinate or indeterminate form, um, I can't say. Uh, maybe there's a difference of opinion amongst Muslim scholars, but this is the kind of the promise of, of becoming a Muslim, is that when you enter paradise, uh, you get to meet God. But, okay, can I jump in? Go ahead, go ahead, I want to yeah. just ask a quick question. So, yeah. so I, have, I have two questions. You could just answer them quickly. They're not like, uh, that rigorous or anything. Sure. So one, what is the Islamic teaching of heaven? And then two, my opinion is that Averroes, I wouldn't even call him a Muslim because he, though he went to the mosque, he didn't believe in personal immortality or a sort of heaven. Hmm. Well, I do know, I do know some Muslims, they view him as a heretic, right? And I, okay, I don't know that, would... that much, but like, I know some Muslims are like, they'll say some very, mean things about the guy which i think is unfair like i mean like i i think each of us kinds of has our own heresies or heterodox beliefs that even if we attend a, a certain church we still haven't reached a certain conclusion so um i, I don't want to cast the man out as like not being a muslim or saying is something else but to get to your point about heaven um this is actually one of the very strong reasons of why I became a landscape architect and I really fell in love with the trade and, you know, the, the industry is because we just have this natural connection with nature. I think it's just innate in every single human being. We just love, I think, except for the people who have allergies, obviously, but like we, we love the beauty of nature, right? There's something just amazing about it. Um, so um, I, I think the descriptions of, of, of paradise, um, I'm not sure if they're similar to the Bible or not, but I will say that there are depictions of it being very lush, there being water, there being milk, there being honey, um, there being, you know, everlasting life. Um, uh, <laughs> there being like, you know, versions in, 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 in paradise. Um, there being your family, your friends, uh, the prophets, uh, the righteous, the martyrs, um, that you know, um, there's mansions. So we we believe that there's mansions that are made out of pearls and gold, and um, I guess we also, I mean, in in some of the traditions of Muhammad, we, we our understanding is that we'll be, we'll be neighbors, right? Um, that just as the way that we have, you know, our neighbors from across the street, we'll have potentially our friends and the people that we went to our mosque with, and our family and our relatives also in a sense living in the same neighborhood um and we also believe that there's going to be lots to do it's not like we just like get to heaven 
and we just kind of like lounge around and do nothing. I mean, you could do that in heaven, but we have this concept that there's going to be plenty of activities and plenty of outlets to just satisfy all of your faculties as a human being. Now, despite everything that I've said that maybe I filled your imagination with in terms of what heaven is, we also come back to a very similar understanding in terms of how we understand God. This is how we understand heaven in that no eye has seen heaven, no tongue or no hand has touched heaven. Um, So therefore, whatever you're imagining of what heaven is, it's going to be even better. And your mind can never even come close to, to, the, to the satisfaction or pleasure of what exists in heaven. Um, so, very radical idea, I think. But um, still, it's, I, I think it's always a beautiful concept to think of our, all the pain and suffering that we have in this world. It, it means something and it, it goes towards a, uh, you know, some kind of prize or reward at the end of it. I think this is this is another one of those areas where there seems to me to be more of a dissimilarity in in the the, the Catholic tradition than a similarity. So, really? and I think this is where actually, yeah, this is where Eastern Orthodoxy is also kind of helpful. So, in the Catholic and Orthodox conception of heaven, well, obviously we have a um, there's a bodily resurrection. So you mentioned that in Islam, your mo your your really perceived as a soul. So does Islam have a conception of a bodily resurrection in heaven or is it just like disembodied souls? Uh, great question. Um, I, I will say that my first instinct to say is that it's a bodily resurrection um, because okay. we have uh, traditions that were passed on that says that we'll be like in our, in our prime, right? So they say, I think the, okay, the tradition yeah. says 40 years old, but like we'll be in our prime while we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that that would be a, definitely a similarity because I know it's so it's actually a I think the most prevalent heresy uh, heresy in the church is a sort of dualism where there's a distinct separation between body and 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 mind or soul and where the that is privileged. Um, it's it's you know the Christian doctrine is that there is a bodily resurrection um, and a new world, but I think the crucial difference seems to me to be that there is for Christians a perpetual progress into what's called the beatific vision. So, so like think about um, the story of the transfiguration or even, even more clear, I think it's Moses who asks to see God and God says no somewhere in the Old Testament. Um, so the, the, this is where this beatific vision kind of has its, its really like kind of fundamental roots is that we are not yet able to see God. We're not yet able to understand him, but with our glorified bodies and in heaven being kind of purged of our, of our vices and being, and being raised up again, we in fact will see him. And I think the best analogy is really kind of like an erotic relationship um, where you are a romantic one, where you, you, you're deeply in love with another person and there's always this perpetual progress into their personality through doing of activities, conversation, et cetera. And that is kind of the analogy between uh, what we are going to experience in heaven, it, this perpetual progress through love into the divine, divine Godhead. Um, so that, that's like the, the, the best I could say about the Christian one right now, obviously tons of scholarly works devoted to it, but yeah. 
No, I, I, I'd want to say that, like, and obviously, like, I, I really feel bad. I, I know there's far more qualified people who, who understand these things in great detail. Um, but on, on a first notion, I don't think that that's, that's in contradiction, or we, we may actually have some similar understanding, right? So the first time that you taste apple juice in, in heaven, it's going to be like, hmm, you know, good apple juice. And then the second time you, you have it, it's not like it's like, oh, I'm tired of this apple juice. Bring me, you know, grape juice or grape drink, <laughs> whatever you say. Um, but like, it, it will just always be better than the next step will always be better than the last, which is like completely flipped from what we experience in this life that you've, if you have too much ice cream, you'll get sick of ice cream. You might actually hate it after some time. So um, mm -hmm. I, I just don't know the verses or the other traditions of, of where I was taught this, but uh, to my understanding that there is a similar concept um, in, in our faith as well. Okay, cool, cool. Okay, back. So, I, Clay, do you want me to kind of like talk a little bit more about the person of Christ? If you've got the stamina for it, or we can like kind of wade out of uh, theology and get into more like the liberal arts tradition and virtue ethics, but I would like to do both if you guys both have time for it. I'm, I'm, I can, I can go all night. So <laughs> all right. just remember you guys are finished, but um, we'll okay. So let me fire so, ahead. All right. So, so this is, so there's, um, I didn't know this. I just found this out a couple of weeks ago, but Aquinas has this short work and it's called like, it's like the errors of the non-believers and he's referring to Muslims and Eastern Orthodox Christians. Mm. So he, he talks about it's, it's, it's about 13,000 words. So it's not that long, but it's, it's like basically a summary of his Summa Contra Gentiles, which was actually written for missionaries to go into Muslim lands. And so it's pretty dense, but he's got a ton of stuff in there where he argues against this idea in the Eastern tradition called the filioque, um, which is basically that the Holy spirit proceeds only through the father. Aquinas denies that the Holy spirit proceeds from the father and through the son. And, um, but he's also got this striking, striking kind of passage or chapter, chapter five on the person of Christ. And so, he gives a couple of these arguments that I was, I was reading and I was like, this is like really fascinating. So he gives a couple arguments for why he thinks Christ became incarnate. Okay. So the reason why this is important is because it seems like Jews, Christians, Muslims, and philosophic pagans are going to agree all the way up to the point, agree with pretty much a lot of stuff including their conception of God up to the point where the Bible says, and God became man and dwelt among us. So like that, that seems to me to be like the definitive break between Christianity and Islam, Judaism, and, and, and uh, like a platonic paganism. And so Aquinas gives these arguments and I'll, I'll, I'll run through just one or two of them real quick. He gives a couple, he gives like five that I found were like really interesting. Um, so I can I think that they can help to flesh out like what the Christian conception of Christ even is because prior to like even reading this I I I was I I I still am I'm pretty confused about just the mystery of Christ but let me let me just give you two of these real quick and um you can kind of discuss them 
So Aquinas, he says basically in this first argument that the way of restoring a problem should correspond to the very nature being restored and the sickness that this restoration is seeking to remedy. So if you accept this principle, then you actually seem to have good reason for accepting that God became man in the person of Christ, since God then took on man's nature and remedied man's perverse will through this taking on of a will by a proper ordering of love toward God. So this argument seems to be getting at the point, or Aquinas seems to be getting at the point that the incarnation is is fitting to have happened because of this principle that the way of restoring, the way of restoration corresponds to the nature being restored and the sickness and the that is seeking to remedy. And so the the God took on man's nature and remedied it through the very ills or sickness that we suffer from. Um, obviously, like the to counter this argument, you would deny that principle. And so the argument would, the dialectical context would shift back to, you know, is that principle true or not? But I mean, that's it, that's something to think about. And it, it helps definitely, if you don't accept it, it helps to clarify at least what the Christian thinks. Um, and so another one that's kind of interesting is that um, in the person of Christ, it's it's fitting for this incarnation to have happened because Christ is a, a model. And so you can think about it this way. In, in the Platonic pagan tradition, you come to know the one or God through either like an inner meditation or this practice of theurgy, what is called theurgy. And really it's this like deeply philosophical, you know, contemplation of this abstract oneness. And this is just not fitting for a lot of people. And it's in fact why paganism died out. One of the reasons why it died out is because the common man just, just couldn't, couldn't get it. You know, the common man is not, not good at worshiping or, or paying homage to abstractions and stuff. And so Aquinas, I think, is thinking this exact thought with this kind of argument. And he says that, well, because God cares and deeply loves this creation, it's fitting to him to come and give us a model in the person of Christ so that we don't have to go into this like philosophic contemplation and that even the child and the ordinary person can see God and model himself after God in the person of Christ. Um, and so I think those those are just two of the arguments. He gives a few more. I don't want to gish gallop you or anything. It's a term in, in debate where you just throw information. Um, but, you know, this is, again, this is in... Aquinas is against the errors of the unbelievers chapter five you can go look at but I was thinking about those and I'm like this is like actually really really fascinating even if you don't believe in the incarnation it helps to at least at the very minimum clarify why the incarnation plays such a deep role I mean the person of Christ is the central mystery of the of the Christian the Christian faith yeah it's, I mean the entire religion hinges on christ's incarnate nature but i i guess to the restoring of nature part the first thing that makes me think of i'm not sure if you're familiar with it but a lot of people speak of like multiple comings of adam so sort of like the first adam was fallen and this was the restoration um of adam taking on man's nature and as you said remedying what had become a perverse nature um have you looked at that at all or heard of that? I, I 
I've heard of it. I have not like looked at the arguments in depth or anything. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't give you those off the top of my head, but it, it, it seems to be me to be kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, of course that would seem to tie in with, with the notion of original sin, um, to, you know, to piggyback on that. This one's yeah. a little out there, but there's people um, <laughs> within like simulation theory and they've taken uh, John one and they've sort of like replaced like the like logos or the word with certain like the upgrade or something like that. So they draw an analogy to like software and like, okay, we're applying an upgrade. This is software 2.0 once uh, Christ has been incarnate and dies and resurrected. Um, so I guess well, for I sake mean, of, for not... sake of analogy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's that, 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 I would hesitate to use that, but it might work <laughs> as an analogy because, you know, I mean, the, the central, like, one of the goal, the end of man, the, the telos, the telos of man is to become deified. And you have to do that through grace. So if we do need, we do need an upgrade yeah. in, in the in the nature of grace to, to, to become deified. So I, I will comment. I'll say that I, I feel like for, for the Muslims, like, I, I feel like we're pointing our 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 arrows our swords our guns in the same direction and that we're we're both aiming for the same thing um and then and that we there's a certain barrier that we hit in terms of okay we we have this abstract understanding of god what do we do now right and um i i think the the binding factor between christians muslims and jews is that we all believe in prophets Right. And I think somewhere in the notes, you, you kind of dug it in, you, you tucked it in there, Jack, about how the main difference that Muslims and Christians have about Jesus is we don't take him as a God, right? We, we, uh, uh, we keep him at the level of prophet, right? Um, and, you know, same thing with Muhammad, right? Some people, they accuse Muslims of worshiping Muhammad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, um, that's incorrect, that anyone who worships Muhammad is obviously... Uh, incorrect in the faith, or if anyone is worshiping a saint, right? So some people, they accuse uh, other Muslims of worshiping saints. Um, mm-hmm. the, the concept of, you know, for Muslims, um, and I would invite, you know, any Christian, you know, to Islam in this regard, in that we, we don't take Jesus as a God. We continue to worship God as an abstraction, but we live like Muhammad, um, to a certain extent, we also live like uh, Jesus. To a certain extent, we live like like Moses. And this is actually a new concept I uh, heard. But Muhammad is actually uh, has taken the qualities of all the prophets and is almost, in a sense, uniting all the best qualities of all the prophets into one prophet. And um, he shows us, you know, because Muhammad, he was a father, right? Um, he was a friend. He was uh, at certain instances, he was a leader. Um, a military leader. Sometimes he was an economic leader, um, and uh, um, he was a judge. So um, these examples of of Muhammad, we as Muslims, we are invited to be like Muhammad. Um, and because in the Quran it says, "Inna um, inna indeed you are on excellent or noble character, which I think is a great segue if we if we want to move into virtue ethics. I mean, I think we can dive into this a little bit. One more. second. Uh, <laughs> Where does yeah. So, like, our salvation is by grace, like, through faith and Christ's resurrection. So what would be 
like sort of the focal point of salvation in Islam? I would say that I feel like for me, this is one of the, like, you know, the, the most sensitive things or, or the scariest things as a Muslim is because we don't, we don't enter, we don't enter into heaven just by our own works. Um, but, but God has to look at us and, and not just our deeds, right? He has to look at us and look at our hearts and say, was this person sincere? Was this person, was there any, was there a mustard seed? Was there even a, a tad bit of arrogance in that person's heart? Because we, we believe that, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the verse. Um, so God says that uh, you will only enter paradise if you if your heart is salim or your or your or your heart is clean. So um, our our whole spiritual journey as Muslims is to purifying ourselves and purifying our hearts um, from any blemishes or any uh, seeds of arrogance or hate or envy, um, because someone can be a scholar and they could be the most awesome Mohammedan Muslim in the world. But if there's even a slightest amount of selfishness in terms of his deeds or in his sincerity, then he's uh, restrained um, and he's prevented. And um, it's impermissible for him to enter into the into paradise. So I, I think, and the reason why I say it's sensitive for me is because you're constantly, not doubting yourself, but you're in this, this constant state of, you know, did I really just show up here for this podcast because um, I was doing something for God, or do I just like the lights and the camera? Is this an opportunity for me to push my brand, the Pirate Bay, to more people? Um, and you kind of have this dissonance. But um, so I guess I would say I, that's I, yeah, a yeah. major, major distinction. Um, I would say in the Christian faith, um, works are somewhat important. Um, but we hang almost all of our salvation on faith in Christ and that through Christ, basically the law of the old Testament or sin, our punishment for sin has been taken away through faith in Christ. It, that, that, yes. If, if you were just to take the, the words I just said, then it would just be a distinction, but um, there's another component to our faith, right? Um, and it's an important maxim that we're taught is that one will be with the one who, who he loves, right? So um, for the most part, for most Christians, right? Uh, Muslims, we don't banish Christians to hell, right? Um, I, I think it, it takes a lot for a Muslim to to say that a Christian is going to hell. Um, uh, but we, we believe that if you if whoever you love, if you truly love Jesus, um, or as a Muslim, if you love Jesus and Muhammad, then you will be with them in paradise. Um, so that, that that's a fundamental concept of, of Islam um, that, that we're taught, that you'll be with whom you love, right? So, um, you know, obviously Muslims, our, our biggest issue is obviously the, 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 the sense or the, the language that, that some Christians use in terms of saying that God has taken a son and that there's a trinity. Um, even as I mentioned before, the, is, the Quran says, don't even say three. Don't say that he's taken, he's taken a son. 
Um, and that's the invitation of Islam specifically to Christians, right? Uh, the invitation to Islam to, to other faith groups is, is maybe a tad different. Um, but like I said, you know, if someone's truly sincerely, you know, love Jesus and they're following Jesus, um, then that person has a clean heart. We, we wouldn't say that person has a bad heart uh, for loving Jesus and just taking the religion that was available to him. Um, mm -hmm. But then again, I'm not God. I don't want to just, for any listeners who are saying, well, you know, there's no reason for me to become Muslim. I love Jesus. And therefore, I, I just don't have to look at Islam as a, as a serious faith. Um, I would say that you do kind of have to raise, we, have, we all have to raise the issue at a certain point to God and letting him decide what our ultimate faith will be. That's interesting. Jack, you have I any? Think, yeah, I think that the the really the the two major differences between uh Islam and Christianity is definitely the person of Christ and then probably this 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 issue of salvation is is definitely one of them. There's a there's um there's some stories of Lutherans facing this like horrific kind of um despair over their salvation back in during the reformation times to the point where they a bunch a group of lutherans actually killed themselves over this because they couldn't take it anymore uh wondering whether or not they would be saved and it seems to me at least in my cursory glances at luther that he was in a similar situation um with his kind of doctrine of, of salvation where he was really struggling to figure out Kind of how to fit that into his own personal life if you want more information on that there's a there's a book called um a lutheran's defense of catholicism or something by robert coons k-o-o-n-s okay. and there's also some stuff on um the byzantine scotist's youtube channel and and the podcast he's done on that but that's that's not like i, I that's only like my my kind of opinion i don't have a worked out position on that um, but yeah, it seems to me that the, the Islamic view of salvation, and the Christian one are going to differ because like as a Christian, yeah, you do have to worry that, you know, am I, if, if I say like the sinner's prayer, or if I like say, oh, I accept Jesus, that really only gets me to kind of the level of the demons, um, where I acknowledge that Christ, you know, was God or something, whatever it, it really, I think is kind of like a, uh, um, much deeper than that but there's also that component of through christ and his grace you can have some certainty of your salvation but i again i barely know anything about this topic this is not my area so we can definitely move on to something else no that's interesting i, no. I think even within different christian um denominations there's some uh con maybe not contradiction but maybe some different um, thoughts oh, on that yeah, topic. Huge. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'll say, I'll say one last thing. Um, I, I have a few friends who think that basically that you're you're immediately saved no matter what through just repenting and believing in Christ, and and obviously I would I would disagree with that. So there are differences. I I don't think that the Catholic and the Protestant views are actually that different. I think that they're merely a difference in in verbiage, but that's a whole other topic. I will say, you know, like the like for 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 Muslims specifically, when we say that we're uncertain about like our final our final destination, um, I, I can say with you know certainty that there there is clarity in terms of what 
does and doesn't lead to heaven or hell, right? So uh, someone cutting off their family ties, um, that's something that is very much punishable. Uh, th- like we, we have a very clear understanding, okay, this is, this is good, this is bad, this is what leads to heaven, this is what leads to hellfire. So I, I wouldn't leave the whole thing to chance, like even for Muslims who are listening to this, who are saying like, you know, so I'm doing all these works, there's really no point. Uh, no, that we, we believe that the sign that a good deed was accepted is that God gives you the willpower to do another good deed to follow it. So there's signals that are sent to us, you know, in this life that whether or not we're on the right or wrong path. Um, but um, I don't know. I think that there that there's still some uh, introspection or some further investigation that happens on the day of judgment um, that uh, goes a little bit more thorough in terms of each of us as individuals, how we spent our time in our life, um, and whether we, we did everything that we possibly could to show our gratitude or love to God. Well, yeah, do we want to... We can we can we can move on to talk about some sort of ethical things. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. So I guess this is where we had highlighted commonalities listed in the Yusuf Peterson discussion. So I think we already touched on importance of family in both Christian, Catholic, Islamic traditions. Um, we touched on we both. Sh- believe in a God who created us creator and sustainer of universe worthy of worship. And we just sort of touched on the day of judgment and resurrection. So now we're sort of into more cultural things, um, a shared liberal arts tradition, um, classical schools and learning. I'll toss that one up. I would say, you know, I, I think Hamza Yusuf, you know, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, he's, um, really opened my eyes to the com- commonalities between the West and, I guess you'd say, the Middle East or the or the Far East. Um, I, th- I think there's uh, a lot that we can say about how robust the educational system here is in the West, um, but we can also talk about what institutions of learning that the Muslim tradition produced, um, whether in Baghdad or, or Cairo, um, from how I understand the liberal arts tradition, and um, I'm sure there's more people who are knowledgeable about it, but the liberal arts, the way that you liberate yourself is by mastering yourself, right? Or controlling yourself and getting really good at logic, getting really good at rhetoric. Um, and this is the way that you're able to free yourself from the chains of society. Th- this is my conception. And I think as Muslims, that, that's how we also see our liberation is by knowing God, and we take God as our only uh, only person that we worship and the only one that we uh, report to, we have liberated ourselves from any sort of economic uh, slavery, any sort of mental slavery, but to any sort of um, any sort of occupation or oppression that can happen. That the, the way that you first liberate yourself is by accepting that there's only one God. Um, so we we say like in the muslim tradition like you know muslims always like to say well muslims were the first to establish the first like university and they say it was a woman who established the first university which i believe was in tunis right um so 
Um, I, I think one thing I liked about Hamza Yusuf, he, he said as well, is that like the, the West, when we say the West, it's like always been in contact with Muslim society and civilization. So I think the, the portrayal that the West and, you know, the Middle East or the East are like a clash of civilization or a clash of cultures, um, I think is furthest from the truth. Um, Jack is just a great example of someone who is very <laughs> steep in reading about Muslim scholars as well as Christian scholars. So I think this sort of leads us into like kind of where Jack and I were at in our last podcast, sort of the Athens and Jerusalem uh, question or framework. Yeah, I mean, just I think that there are a lot of similarities between the three Abrahamic faiths and their conception of the moral life. So what's interesting is that um, the Aristotelian picture, the Homeric picture, the Platonic picture, the Sophoclean picture, let's see what else, Jane Austen, Ben Franklin, all these, all these different paradigms of virtues. Okay. You have all these different paradigms of virtues and um, they all kind of differ in some ways, but I think one of the fundamental like connecting points between them all is that they're radically opposed to the ethics that we see today, especially in politics. So let me give you a quick example here. Um, <clears throat> if you just look at how we handle policymaking in the United States, it's generally on a utilitarian basis. Um, how we handle any sort of decision in our own lives it's very easy to collapse into sort of just weighing the costs and benefits. And that is just radically opposed to these virtue traditions, especially the, the Christian and Islamic one. I mean, speaking from the Christian point of view, that old, the old cliche of like, what would Jesus do? Actually, I think the more you study starts to ring truer and truer where you're trying to, sort of imitate the virtues that Christ had and act in accordance with those. And the central virtue is prudence, roughly translated, or right judgment. And so the, the, the distinction between a virtue ethics and a utilitarian or a Kantian ethic is that virtue ethics, you, you don't have rules. You have a framework that you develop through reading and practice, and you apply this framework of proper judgment, courage, wisdom, temperance, justice, faith, hope, love, etc. You apply this framework throughout your life. And so there are no hard and fast rules. You know, Kant was, I'm sure you've heard, Kant was famous for holding that, um, you know, <laughs> in the Never case lie. of like an Never. Yeah, an axe murderer coming to murder your your child or whatever, and he's at the front door. You couldn't lie to him. Um, I, I think that maybe we can make we might be able to make an exception there. Um, but but yeah, there are there are certain thought experiments depending on your your view on lying. There are certain Kantian thought experiments where I think you can you can demonstrate that a virtue ethics has just a lot more flexibility than a, than a, than a Kantian one. So yeah, like that's that's preliminaries. Well, the framework of, a, say, from an Abrahamic faith, like their virtue ethics, how different is that from, say, like 
Aristotle, like the means of Aristotle, where there's certain virtues and you either have a lack or an excess. Is it a similar framework from what you understand or? Yeah, I mean, from my understanding that the, the, the main difference between, again, Platonic, Aristotelian, Christian, etc. versions of the virtues is is not in like kind of the methodology, but it's in the specific virtues. Mm-hmm. So in um, in in the Homeric text in the Homeric Homeric age, whether or not that's actually historical, whatever. But in the Homeric texts, one of the central virtues is this kind of Achillean agathos or goodness is the really rough translation where Achilles, this, this monstrous kind of warrior who just pillages and like slaughters people, he is seen as the ultimate pinnacle of virtue. And obviously you get to the Christian tradition and it's radically, radically different. Um, but I think, I suspect the same idea is there where virtues are seen really roughly as kind of a middle ground. I mean, you have the famous Aristotelian distinction in the Nicomachean Ethics of virtues being a sort of golden mean between two extremes, two vices. I, th- I think that's true in the Christian tradition for, for, for sure, where you have courage and on one side you have cowardice, but on the other side you have an, an, an excess of courage. I forgot exactly what it was called. Um, but I'm sure you can have, in fact, in the Christian tradition, say wisdom, and maybe the extreme is going to be pride, and the other extreme is going to be sort of a deficiency. So yeah, I mean, I think that this is where the seven deadly sins, which originally were the eight capital vices, actually fit in very well. I think that the, the these eight vices or seven deadly sins are, in fact, the radical extremes of some of the Christian virtues. Yeah, so I guess, okay, we have some notes here. I thought it was very interesting. Both Luther and Calvin were pretty against this model, but then you have going further back. Aquinas combined the Aristotelian ethics with Augustinian theology. Yeah, okay, so let me comment real quick. So this is important for the audience to know. So there's a tradition in Christianity that, that is very common today still in Protestantism from what I have experienced. Um, it's called divine command theory. Okay, so this is a this is a, a, a Calvin and Luther. I'm pretty sure they were both um, divine command theorists. And some people trace this back to Occam and Scotus, who were two uh, Catholic Christian philosophers, though I'm a bit more hesitant on that. I think you can definitely trace it back to Occam. I don't know about Scotus. Um, but anyway, divine command theory is basically the idea that whatever God wills or commands that is moral. Okay, so, so, yeah, go for it. For example, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Yes. Exactly, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. The So this, so this idea, basically, what it does is it, it privileges God's will over his reason. Okay, so in, in the Thomistic, from the Thomistic's perspective, God cannot, omnipotence is, is a very strange term. So from the Thomistic perspective, omnipotence does not mean like this radical, do whatever the hell you want type deal. It, God can't do contradictions. And so from the Thomistic perspective, God cannot 
deem moral things that are contrary to reason or the natural law. So one of those things would be the murder of an innocent human person. So for the Thomist, because God's reason is privileged over his will, God cannot then just say, okay, screw it. You know, we, it's totally moral to kill innocent human beings. It's totally moral to rape. It's totally moral to uh, steal, to riot, whatever. Like that would, that would never happen because that's contrary to the reasoning in the natural law. But for the voluntarist or somebody who privileges God's will over his reason, this is acceptable. So God technically could, in fact, say, okay, you know, it's totally fine for you to sacrifice your children. Okay, whatever. No contradiction in that. And this is the philosophic basis of divine command theory, where whatever God commands is moral. Um, and then you can have separate arguments about, okay, well, if God commands it because God is like the ultimate object of respect and reverence, therefore I have a duty to follow it, follow this command. Yeah, whatever. Those are like separate arguments. You can go on and on and, and, and flush those out. But that that's the, that's the difference. So, so Luther and Calvin... I'm about 99% sure we're divine command theorists of a sort. Um, and obviously, yeah, that's contrary to what the Thomist would say. I could definitely say, I mean, um, Calvin believed in determinism. So I would see how that would fall in line. So what would yeah. like a Thomistic interpretation of that Abraham and Isaac story, like how do they deal with that? Or like so, there's so, countless of yeah. them in the Old Testament. So the way my, my hermeneutic for interpreting this would be that the, the Torah clearly uh, uh, bars child sacrifice. So that's, that's in Leviticus somewhere. Um, there's that story in, I think, Judges where the king sacrifices his daughter or something and like God wreaks havoc on him. Uh, a bit rusty. I haven't read that in years, but yeah. so clearly, clearly the Torah bans child sacrifice. So we have to say that there's it's definitely prohibited. Um and there are ways to kind of like interpret this story. One kind of the Petersonian route would be to say, okay, well, what is this story trying to teach us? And I think Peterson would be in line with somebody like Origen, who would try to interpret this along the lines of a sort of spiritual allegory to try to teach us something. Um, so, so just to fill the audience in, there's there are different there are different ways of interpreting the Bible. So there's a, like a a literal, which does not just mean historical. There's also a metaphor or an allegorical, a, a spiritual, and a one other one. And so one of these ways you could interpret that passage is to look at it as not a, um, like, maybe you could say it's not a historical event, but it's like some sort of spiritual truth. If you want to take the more historical route, you could say that Abraham, even though he, I, I've seen scholars try to hint that Abraham thinks that Isaac would not actually have been killed and that there are signs in the text at his hinting at Isaac's um, like being miraculously saved, something like that. But I, I, that's, that's the best I got. I, I, I'm right now. I haven't, yeah, that's the best I've got. Yeah. It's a really fascinating story. I don't, it is difficult to, interpret i mean i believe in interpreting scripture on different levels but i feel like it simultaneously works on like each different level throughout i guess 
it'd be hard for me to ever <laughs> say that a section is completely allegory or something. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. It's interesting. Ish, anything to add? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I will say one thing. As Muslims, we believe that it was Ishmael who was actually going to be slaughtered by Abraham, um, not Isaac. Uh, that's that's our interpretation of that story. Um, I could say that you can categorize Muslims into three categories. Uh, you can categorize them as Ashari uh, voluntarism, which is very close to divine command theory. Um, you can divide us into what they call Mu'tazili deontology. And then I'm reading off slides here. I'm not sure if you guys can tell. Um, there's another very uh, prominent figure in Islam. His name is Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, Jack, once you're done like killing Ibn Sina and the, and the other guy, uh, I think you're, you're going to eventually come across Ibn Taymiyyah and um, okay, give good, him a run good. for his money. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, um, Ashri volunteerism, like where we went over at divine command theory, I would say that's like the largest majority of Muslims that exist today. Um, why do we pray? Because God told us so. And once you reach a certain age, you are responsible to pray, right? Um, and you have to go do all the other things that are important for you to be Muslim. Or if you be Muslim, you have to do these things because God said so. Um, the other component is deontology is that we have a duty to fix the justice uh, um, or, or to fix the world around us, to, to command towards justice. Um, and, and God would only command us to do something that's good. So anything that God has commanded us to good, then we have a responsibility uh, to, to follow it. Um, and then the last figure that I, I, I mentioned towards the end, he's kind of the mix of in between. He's kind of a little bit of a utilitarianist. Um, because he looks, okay, well, God told us to do this, right? Like, let, let me give you a good example, right? So growing a beard in Islam, right? Uh, some people will say it is uh, God or the prophet commanded you to, to grow a beard, so you have to grow a beard, right? And other people say, no, it's your duty to, to grow a beard. The, the last person will say, well, if your job tells you to shave your beard off, then you have to weigh the pros and cons between getting the reward or the blessings of growing out a beard versus like having a livelihood to feed your family that that's a higher priority. So that's kind of how, you know, the last figure, Ibn Taymiyyah, he kind of uh, um, dove into this topic. He said, we, we kind of have to use revelation and we have to use reason to reach, um, I guess you would say the greatest good or like, you know, the ut utilitarian approach. Um, once again, there's more to this. This is just kind of like a very bird's eye service view scan of all of it. But um, I think it's still very intriguing that um, these kinds of thoughts were developed years after um, the message of Jesus or the message of Muhammad. Um, and we're kind of using these things to kind of solve the world around us. Um, so it's, I think it's important. I honestly think it's very important for every like college student um, and every like educated professional or every educated person to know these categorizations because often the claims that are, you know, uh, pushed on us by politicians, businessmen, or, or, or mentors or whatever, um, it's very important for you to be able to have the ability to map out these things so you know you have choices 
right, in terms of what you can do. Or if you want to be principled and stick to one school of thought, you can stick to one school of thought. So to jump us back a little bit, that is a really interesting. I wasn't aware of some of those distinctions, but to go maybe a little into comparing um, virtues, I thought I'd pick up this quote and let me try to, okay, this is from a site called Mere Orthodoxy, just to give them a little bit of credit. <clears throat> but this quote starts, this is the difference between Aristotle's magnanimous man and C.S. Lewis's humble man. Whereas Aristotle calls for self-dependence and noble work, heralding Nietzsche's Ubermensch, Christ opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and therefore radically alters our concept of virtue itself. Neither Nietzsche nor Aristotle have real language or respect for humility, dependency, and weakness in the way that the gospel articulates and redeems. The cardinal virtues of Aristotle are courage, justice, prudence, and temperance, the traits of a philosopher king. The cardinal virtues of Christianity are faith, hope, and love, the characteristics of a suffering servant. Um, so I guess we can have some commentary on that, but maybe before I kick it over, I'd say probably an, um, an important point to note about Christ giving grace to the humble and opposing the proud is maybe that Christ already had ultimate power and sort of relinquished his control over the power before making himself humble. So any thoughts on that or the comparison of those virtues? Yeah, I mean, I could talk all day about the Homeric and, and, and the Aristotelian virtues, but uh, let me give the audience kind of a brief like 60 second move here. So the one thing that, that you need to be aware of is that there's just no room in ancient Greek society for anything like human rights, anything like humility, um, anything like giving love um, to your enemies and helping the poor. I mean, there's just there's just nothing. So in in the Republic, I think it's book three, there's this famous passage with a carpenter and the carpenter, you know, he's he gets sick and it's like, OK, well, what exactly are you supposed to do? And the carpenter, I think, gives the response where he's just like, well, I might as well die. And the reason why is because in ancient Greek societies, your social, who you are is a result of your function in society. And so if you're a carpenter and you can't perform your social role, you're literally as good as dead. That's, that, that is your entire worth. And obviously that's going to differ in Christianity and probably Islam and, and, and Judaism as well. Um, again, I touched on Achilles. Achilles is the, the focal point for what the Greek conception of the agathos or the, or the, the, the virtuous man is. So everybody compares themselves to Achilles. Am I as beautiful as Achilles? Do I kill as many people as Achilles? Am I as courageous as Achilles? If not, then, oh, well, you know, you're deficient in some sense. So that is radically opposed to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's five, Matthew 5 through 7, where, where in the Beatitudes, that first section there, it's the pure in heart that will see God, um, the meek that will inherit the earth, and, and so forth. 
Yeah, that's interesting. One, I guess a problem I've always had, I'd say all of us probably identify as pretty driven um, men. And so one thing I've had a hard time balancing is almost like, how can you rely on sort of grace or humbling yourself? And how do you balance that with wanting to improve yourself and wanting to make like a large impact on the world? Like almost how can you, is there a way to melt those two systems of virtues together? I mean, my, my answer, cause I have definitely thought about this before. I mean, this is a classic um, issue. If you ever look at the Philokalia, which is a, an Eastern Orthodox spiritual text, this is just implicit everywhere. But I mean, my answer that I've given to people and I think is, is the way to go about it is um, to just look at what the, to try to order everything you do toward God. And, 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 and that is, I think the way, so like, for instance, even like drinking water. Okay. Why am I drinking water? Why am I eating the foods that I do? Well, I want to respect my body and I want to, because my body is part of who I am and it, it, it enables me to not only study, but to go to, go to, to, to mass or to the mosque, the synagogue, whatever, but it's also got part of God's creation. Um, you know, why do I make friendships? Well, because I'm interested in learning about the truth. I'm interested in interacting with people and my friendships are going to last into eternity. So, you know, making friends is ordered toward the divine. Okay, why do I want to go to work? There's there's a great tradition in the in the monastics, the Desert Fathers, where manual labor is seen as glorifying God because it helps you to to order your body to your mind. So like, you know, working out, going to work, these things order place your body below metaphorically your mind so that you have some sort of perseverance and self-control. So I think that the, the way to go about thinking about that is to ask, like, how am I ordering what I'm doing to God? You know, if I am CEO of this company, am I acting ethically? Am I, you know, not engaged in insider trading? Am I using my funds to impact people? Am I do, um, pursuing a noble goal as a lawyer? Am I, am I doing that? And, you know, again, this is where virtue ethics is helpful because it's up to our own prudential judgment. Hopefully we've developed this, this virtue of prudence um, through the Christian or Muslim or Jewish tradition to be able to answer these questions properly. But, but that central notion of ordering something to its proper end is, is I think, the, the, the way to go about thinking of that. I, I would add... Yeah, that's um, really... Go ahead-ish. Yeah, no, I, I would add, uh, I, I think I agree with uh, Jack on, on, on multiple levels. I think the... Like for the Muslim, our understanding of, okay, how do we balance from I understood Clay's question, like being ambitious and driven and, you know, also kind of humbling yourself and, um, you know, giving to, to others or defending those who cannot defend themselves. Um, I would say that, you know, for the Muslim, we say th the answer is Muhammad because he's the best example that he was someone who was ambitious. He, he was successful. Um, but at the same rate, he lived and he was w with the poor um, and he helped the poor. Um, so, yeah, I would say for, for Muslims, we say that we're a balanced nation. 
So going into extremes, like going, just being so greedy and taking everything in your path or like as a Jordan Peterson, Hamza Yusuf talk, like being a dog or uh, what was the other uh, categorizations? Like the world will be destroyed by either dogs or pigs. I think that's what he said. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like uh, uh, not going into those extremes, but also like feeding yourself. Like that's nourishing yourself is still a very godly, you know, characteristic Um, or nourishing your family. Um, and the opposite of starving your family or starving yourself is is a bad characteristic because that can lead to suicide. Um, so I think it's always about the balance. That's kind of how we we see it as Muslims is, you know, if you can balance the two, you know, uh, then then you're typically pretty good. But if, if you can't, then something has to give. Yeah. I would agree there. Um it's a very agreeable subject. I don't think there's there's really, I mean, I I know we always like we start our Abrahamic faith discussions with kind of like the theology and the creed, but I, I think sometimes the the more exciting part where we can depart from in these conversations is actually you know starting from the virtue ethics, right? You know, talking about how how was Jesus, how did he conduct and behave himself? Because I think a lot of the interfaith dialogues that happen out there between Christians and Muslims is like we've completely forgotten who Muhammad and Jesus was, and we just want to like butt heads on theology. And it's like, you know, how about we, you know, we go back to square one and work on our virtue ethics, and then maybe, maybe we'll be mature enough to have a good conversation about you know theology and other very uh, high level discussions about philosophy and what have you. Yeah, no, that's totally, totally agree. I mean, this is why, you know, educating, or, or I, I hate that word, say <laughs> studying. Because <laughs> it's been so co-opted in society. You hear all the people on like Twitter and TikTok, educate yourself. Oh my God, like, <laughs> I, yeah. I hate I hate that word. Um, studying some of these classic texts in the Christian Arabic Islamic tradition, um, not only in the virtue ethics to try to develop kind of your yourself and also the religious text, but also I mentioned at the very beginning, the rules, setting out the rules for debate and discussion in something like Aristotle's topics. I think that that is just so missed because again, you know, uh, somebody on YouTube, some Muslim or Christian making a video against a Muslim or Christian, just screaming about like how Muhammad was this or how divine simplicity and the Trinity are incompatible. It just is totally unproductive. I mean, it's it doesn't get you anywhere. The 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 the, the debates, and this is this is good for the audience to hear. The way you go about evaluating different worldviews is from within. So it's like if I want to go and try to refute Islam or paganism or Christianity, and vice versa, if somebody wants to try to refute Christianity, you have to go to within the system so think about it like like a venn like kind of like a venn diagram if you're if you have like a circle and you just throw crap at the circle for instance saying oh um you know the quran is wrong about this scientific fact purported scientific fact so therefore we have to discard it that that, the muslim obviously will say okay well you know i'm not going to accept that premise because the quran is revealed by god so you have to go within the faith tradition itself and point out the areas where the tradition itself either fails to have resources for answering certain questions, has some sort of epistemological crisis, or performs some sort of logical or performative contradiction. Um, 
that is how you 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 debate. That's how you debate. And so if 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 in these a lot of these online conversations between different faith traditions, I just don't see that whatsoever, which is why I've tried to do my research significantly, um, you know, and, and present like, okay, well, here's why I'm, I'm not a Muslim, but here's why I'm a Christian. Here are some problems with the Christian tradition. Here are some resources for, for trying to remedy them. You know, here's why I'm not a neo-pagan, but here's where I think that tradition has some resources that I can borrow from and so on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think our, our, uh, departments, like our education about world religions nowadays is like incredibly shallow. And I mean, if, yeah. if this became like part of the pedagogy of, of, of schools about teaching religion is, um, you know, uh, rooting yourself in these kind of these, these universal principles and entering into these traditions. Um, I think a lot of more people, they would find comfort in the religion that they choose. Um, but unfortunately, it's like, oh, it's like either just say all the religions are the same or, you know, all religion is backwards. Um, and then the kind of conversation ends right there. Um, so I don't think you're wrong in using the word education because I think education has played a significant role um, on the direction um, of our society and, and of a lot of individuals. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with addressing education systems and saying how can we potentially be better and um making people more in tune with i mean it just we just feel i feel as a modern society we're just very different from all past ancient societies and uh you know i i think we need to kind of dive a little deeper in terms of why that is well i feel like it's one thing look can i add one thing about that okay so i've been reading this dialogue platonic dialogue called the menno and the dialogue is, 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 it's about the parts and holes. So that's one of the hermeneutics you can use to, to kind of interpret it is, is how do parts relate to holes. And, and one thing I have noticed thinking about this is that it, it seems like in my experience and, and the people who I've ta- whom I've talked to in their education, um, and especially their religious education, parts and holes are just, dis- they're just not separated. They're not cohering. So to give you, to kind of flesh this out less abstractly, um, this overarching view of, okay, how do I decide between religions? Um, how do I incorporate religion into some sort of unified whole in my life? How is religion supposed to be incorporated and taught at the university level? That is not a conversation I have ever seen in my schooling. Um, and I think that that is just awful. And I, I, th- I, I think that, that, that Yusuf is, um, is, is he works at that that school in California, right? Yeah, I think Berkeley. Yeah, he well, there's there's like a there's like a classic Islamic school. Um, I don't think it's a college that's like in California right now. It's like the only one in the country, maybe in the world, where they're like trying to model kind of like the classical Christian Catholic schools. I think he works there, but I could be wrong. Hmm. Um, but, but one of these things that, that these schools seem to be doing, that's, that's kind of modeled after the medieval university is engaging in sort of inquiry where parts and holes are unified, where the tradition, the religious tradition is seen, um, as, as kind of educating the whole kind of schooling. And there are intellectual debates going on about the, where the religion falls short, et cetera, in this form of like a disputed question format, um. That's just my kind of off the cuff response. 
I think like another problem is just simply time and cultural barriers. Like it's, it's so difficult to immerse yourself in another religion or even to have extreme discussions. You don't always like run into people of a different religion that feel like explaining it to you. It's difficult to show up to another place of worship um, and feel comfortable. And then within the school setting, I feel like there's really just not enough time. Like if you have to 15 week semester, two or three hours a week, and you have to nail through like five different religions, like it's just, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, I'd even yeah. look at that that way in terms of like the whole proxies of the whole thing. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, um, you know, sometimes the problems that we're in, it's it's not due to anything that we've done, um, you know, ourselves. It's just the the circumstances that I think God put us in, and we're just and it's even challenged to, to deal with it. It's even difficult to be, uh, sort of introspective about your own religion or even to study up and learn your, your own religion. And I would say that even like the vast majority of churchgoers maybe barely ever even crack open a Bible or get much more input other than a few hours a week. Yep. I I think that's even the, the challenge now of just even the religious folk is like, uh, like once again, you, you're busy with work, you're busy with family. There's really maybe only a few guys in the community who are really diving deep into to these subjects and these topics. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a challenge for religious people. I mean, I th- think especially in the world where I think religion is needed more than ever, um, how, how do people of faith, you know, step up to the plate to address, you know, poverty, violence, war, um, famine, whatever it is, um, how do you mobilize those people to work across the table, across even other religious groups? Because you might even reach a certain capacity where not just one faith group can take care of the problem. You need to ally and par- I hate the word ally, but <laughs> you have to partner up with other people and make a coalition to to make certain things uh, move ahead without, at the same rate, uh, uh, diluting or uh, um, you know forsaking your core beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So I feel like the audience would be kind of pissed off if I didn't at least mention the Trinity. Okay. (laughs) I forgot we didn't even like hit that. That's what I know. I was looking at the notes and I was like, do I want to do the Maximus, the confessor quotes on virtue at all? Or, but yeah, let's throw it over to the Trinity. Okay, so let me just, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it. I'll give like a little bit of a presentation. So I'll preface it by saying that <laughs> nobody understands the Trinity. I mean, I'm, you got to be honest here. You can hear all these people talk about like, oh, well, there's an analogy to Tesseracts and four-dimensional spaces. and everything. Okay, nobody understands the Trinity. That's part of the doctrine is the reason why it's called a mystery of the faith is that you can't understand it through reason. So, but that doesn't mean that it's incoherent. So the approach of Aquinas is to say this. You say, okay, we have, we are in, we are within our faith tradition. Okay, so this is what where I've talked about the dialectical context. So we're within a faith tradition. We've accepted Christianity 
Christianity reveals to us that God is triune. So therefore, we take it on Christian tradition and faith that God is triune. Um, so this is why I brought up Aristotle's topics before and stuff. So a, a, a pagan or a Muslim or a Jew saying, oh, well, you know, God isn't triune. That, that, that's, that's outside of the dialectical context. And the Christian is just going to respond with, well, within the Christian tradition, I know by faith that he is. So, And there's just going to be no dialogue whatsoever. So that, so objecting to the Trinity actually has to come from within the Christian tradition, um, mm. or it has to be about which tradition, which revelatory, which revelation is actually correct. So like these, these people I see on YouTube and in, in some academic settings, leveling objections saying, oh, well, you know, God is simple, therefore he can't be triune. Okay, well, that the Christian just brushes that off. Um, and the, the argument Aquinas would give would be that, okay, well, since we're within this Christian tradition, we know that the things by faith are certain. We know that faith teaches us that God is triune. Therefore, God is triune, and we know that for certain. And any attacks, well, faith trumps that. Um, so that's going to be like, if you if you want to learn more about that type of argument, look at the very first question of the Summa. Um, so, but anyway, the Christian, what the what Aquinas' move is, is he's, he's going to go like this. He's going to say, okay, we can't prove the Trinity. We can't deduce it. We can't, we can't prove it. You know, we, we don't have any philosophical reasons to kind of argue for it. But since we know it by faith, we know that it's true. And therefore, since truth does not contradict truth, philosophy is not going to contradict the Trinity. And so we can prove through philosophy that believing in the Trinity is not believing in nonsense. So that is the Thomistic perspective. Obviously, there are different Christian perspectives. So somebody like Anselm is going to pro provide some arguments to try to deduce the Trinity. Um, there are some thinkers, I want to say maybe Meister Eckhart, but I could be mistaken. So there's disagreement. But the Thomistic approach, uh, and just, just to be clear again, I'll, I'll briefly repeat it. The Thomistic approach is to take the tradition as your first starting point. And obviously there's argumentation preceding that over which tradition is correct. But once you're in the Christian tradition, whatever is revealed by faith is certain. The Trinity is revealed by faith. Therefore, the Trinity is certain. Since truth does not contradict truth, philosophical truth will not contradict the truths of the faith. Therefore, we can prove that philosophy does not contradict the Trinity. Um, so really the goal in Thomistic accounts of the triune Godhead is to prove that it's not nonsensical. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of really good resources, but you know, I think that 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 is probably the best way to think about it. Um, let me see. I have a good quote here from a Thomist, a Dominican, who kind of brings this up. Okay, so here it is. So this is from Herbert McCabe. He says this: Aquinas then is faced with a situation similar to the quantum physicists. We have grounds on the we have, we have on the grounds of revelation to say two quite different kinds of things about God. He's And he brought up quantum physics to say that matter can be both a wave and a particle. Um, so we have on grounds of revelation saying that God is one, but he's triune. That God is altogether one, but there are three who are God. We cannot see how they can both be true, but that need not phase us. What we have to do is show that there are no good grounds for saying that they are incompatible. We have to show, in fact, that the conditions which would make them incompatible in other cases do not and cannot apply to God, 
And we need to remember that all we know of God is what he is not, what he cannot be if he is to be God, the reason why there is anything instead of nothing. So that's kind of a summary of, of Aquinas' position of really, again, making it, it, his dialectical move is not to deduce the Trinity, but to show that it's certain based on faith by arguing for the faith and then showing that it has no contradictions in it. I feel like it's also very symbolically satisfying for whatever that's worth. <laughs> oh, I mean, the Trinity, like even in my, again, I, I have barely any exposure to the Trinity because it's like such an interesting and massive topic that I haven't got around to yet. But even in my like limited exposure, it is unbelievably just like beautiful and mysterious. I mean, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus has this line in his orations where he says that the, mo the, the monad was surpassed into the dyad and stopped out of necessity at the triad or, or something like that. And Maximus, the confessor, actually comments on this and is ambigua. But what he's getting at is how Christians view the Trinity of a, you have God the Father, and then you have his eternal procession of his word, which is the Logos, which is the Son, and then the love between them is the Holy Spirit. And so there's like a lot going on there and you need an entire picture of like metaphysics to, to cash that out. But the Thomistic perspective is that it, it follows basically the Thomistic perspective to, to kind of start to think about the Trinity is to first start with what God is. And since we know through reason, which Aquinas, you know, reasons out in his, in his, arguments we know that god is one and simple which means that there is no distinction there there are there are no um there are no parts to god i should say then we know that we use that to interpret the trinity and we say okay god in his intellect into intellectual process forms a concept eternally and that eternal concept is the word but since there are no parts in god that word just is God as well. So that that is like the brief, brief summary of, of what's going on. But as you can tell, it gets like really complicated really quick. I'm not sure I, you know, how I can jump in, but, you know, I'll say that, you know, I, I think when, because you, you mentioned, you start off by saying like, we have to understand the Trinity from within the tradition, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I also think it's important to understand what what creates a tradition and what also causes a tradition to to break down or to slowly deteriorate. Um, because um, different scholars, whether in the Christian tradition, um, whether in the Muslim uh, tradition, they've come with their own reformation, they've come with their own revitalization of certain ideas, um, uh, you know, obviously the Trinity is something that is just, I think, very, very continuous in all the different sects of Christianity. Unless I'm mistaken, there's maybe sects out there that don't believe in the Trinity, but to my knowledge, all Christians for the most part do. Um, um, I, I think it's also important to, I mean, I, I try to as much as possible uh, um, look at my traditions and what I maybe was raised in, maybe looking at other people, like, you know, Muslims, we have Sunni and Shia, and they come in their own their own traditions. Um, so, I, I think my question for you guys—I mean, obviously, I don't want to come like and just say like, 
wow, you guys believe one equals three or, or say a lot of the, 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 the aggressive rhetoric that Muslims use. But how can, how can a Christian, um, how can, not just for the Trinity, but even be self-critical of your traditions or, or, or your schools? How, how is, is there room for people to, to question these certain ideas, uh, be it the Trinity or other things that um, maybe uh, people need to, there's something in them that feels like they have to address or, or question? I think it oh, might. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, go ahead, Clay, you go. Oh, I was going to say, I think it might throw back to that mystery or struggle. Like, I mean, I guess you could go about the path of logically proving it, but I don't believe that it needs logical proof. Is that a satisfying answer or not? I mean, I think that'd be in line with Thomas's position. Um, well, again, the, the crucial distinction Thomas makes is there's a difference between believing something or knowing that something is impossible, believing or knowing that something is impossible or logically contradictory and not knowing how it works. That's the distinction he makes in this case that I think is, is, is important because we often conflate that. So not knowing how God can be triune, um, not knowing how in quantum physics, we have a particle and a wave function at the same time. That is different from knowing that those don't, or knowing that those things are contradictory. Um, so there's the distinction between not knowing and knowing that it's contradictory. Yeah, a lot of people explain it as like, um, at home, she's a mother. At work, she's a coworker. To her sister, she's a sister. I think that's like a very, very reductionist explanation. I think it's a lot richer than that. I don't think they're mm. actually, it's not like a role you play. Like some people will say sort of like it's a different persona of God or a different role that he's playing. Would you, would you guys describe the, the experience of the mystery? Not, not just like the mystery as, as something that you just blindly follow, but it seems like, you know, as Christians is something you guys experience. Um, let me rephrase that. Would you guys say that the experience of, of the Trinity is, is a reason in which why you guys continue to be faithful, like uh, to your religion or, or, or your tradition? That there's something yeah, experientially I mean, that happened that 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 brought you really close. You brought your heart really close, you know, to to the to the idea. Yeah, I mean, this is actually really interesting um, because this is where I would I would fall back on kind of that argument I mentioned earlier, where I think the person of Christ is just so crucial. So there's there's a problem in there's a problem in Aristotelian thought very prominent in Avicenna and Averroes where and, and also Augustine Aquinas in, in all these guys the problem is like how can God actually know particulars so like how can God actually know you and me so Averroes actually says that he can't so this is where we, we get that back to like Averroes potentially being heretical. Um, Avicenna, I'm pretty sure, also holds that God cannot know particulars, but he knows particulars in a universal way. 
Um, and so that would seem to me to make the Islamic tradition a bit more kind of impersonal. Whereas in the person of Christ, we have this really robust personal element that I can look at an icon of Christ. I can read about his, his life on earth and say, wow, God literally became man to demonstrate how much he loves mankind and me within mankind in order to bring me toward him. You know, Aquinas says that we love through being loved and the incarnation is the greatest expression of love. And so if I notice this and reflect on it, I reflect on the, the, the incarnate love, then I am brought closer to God. Um, so yeah, I think that, 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 that the, the person of Christ is just the central linchpin of, of Christianity, really what separates it from, from anything else. Um, and so without it, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I think obviously without, without it, you wouldn't have Christianity. Yeah, I agree with that. But again, I mean, talk about the Trinity is, um, I, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even begin to say that I understand it. Um, but, but, but let me answer, let me try to give an answer to your original question ish about, about room for questioning and stuff. So that's interesting. Um, so I think the best thing I could say is that there are, there's, so in the Catholic tradition, there are, there are dogmas, um, and there are, and those things, like if you, if you don't believe those, you're a heretic. And so like I mentioned Arianism, so Arius did not believe that Jesus was divine. And so obviously would reject a sort of Trinity. And because of that, they held a council. And so at the council, like they argued it out and they, you know, declared that Arianism is a, is a heresy. So like you have room or you have certainly had room in the past, um, but some matters at councils have been deemed to be like this, this is essential to the faith and without it, it's not the same faith. So we've settled it uh, and, mm -hmm. and we have to move on, but there is room in the philosophic literature to question how it may be the case. So there's, I met with, with a, a scholar from Baylor who has an interesting paper on the Trinity and he tries to use modern metaphysics um, and mathematical logic to show that the Trinity is, is um, or the incarnation really his main focus is not, not inconsistent. Could you drop that um, name? So there's that. Alexander Pruse, A-L, okay. Alexander, and then P-R-U-S-S. He's got a paper on the incarnation, super technical. Um, so, so there's definitely room to question like a lot of tenants. I mean, you can see in the news right now that LGBT abortion, et cetera, is like seriously at the forefront of the church in Germany. Um, Francis has been, has been dropping some bombshells on that within the past two years or so. Um, so that would be like my, my rough answer. My more formalized, like abstract answer would be that it seems that there are like things within the faith tradition that if true would falsify it. So for instance, like if somebody could show that the Trinity is, is, is logically contradictory, then that would definitely be a falsification event. Um, if, if you could show that Pope Vigilius 
or Pope uh, Honorius, Honorius or Pope Francis was a formal heretic, then that would be a falsification of the Catholic faith. Mm. Um, and people have tried to do that. So Pope Vigilius is a famous, uh, famous case that you can, you can look up. And, um, you know, some people say that he was a formal heretic that would violate the infallibility doc dogmas at Vatican one, therefore falsifying, um, the church's teaching and, um, you know, proving that the Catholic faith is, is, is not, not, not true. So there are like falsification things like this that are definitely, definitely open. I mean, obviously like as a Catholic, I don't think that they, they hold, but yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Cause I, I think a lot of Muslims, they, they miss that about Christianity in that like, the, the, like how, how central, like the, the authorities of Christianity are in terms of preserving the faith of, yeah. Of, of, yeah. of so many people. And, you know, I feel like the opposite is true in, in the Muslim tradition. It's like the orthodoxy doesn't necessarily just come from the scholars. The orthodoxy is almost protected by the masses in Islam. Mm -hmm. So if I had a Muslim scholar one day start, you know, saying some, some crazy stuff against the faith, the, the masses would, you know, go and take them off the pulpit and, you know, pull them aside and say, you're now stripped of your authority to, to speak about the faith. And, uh, you know, there might be some consequences in, in, in what you did. Um, despite despite uh, the fact that scholarship is the main reason in terms of why that knowledge is disseminated, um, of why the, mm -hmm. like and that knowledge is disseminated and it's held its position in the hearts of, you know, uh, quote, the quote unquote masses. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you shared that with me because I, I feel like that's so, just always been a gap for me. If I could just jump in and contrast it more, hopefully it doesn't make it more confusing, but I'd say like almost all, well, not all, many Protestant traditions don't have the same sort of central yeah. authority. Yeah. And a lot of it, at least personally for me, um, a lot of the traditions that I've been in are based almost exclusively on the word of God or the Bible. And then some of it is open to personal interpretation. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, go, go, go for you it. You know, I, I would say like, you know, like for the tradition that I follow with, you know, um, it's kind of a balance. I feel like I'm very much of a mix of the two in terms of being Protestant and also being Catholic at the same time. Um, like I have a very clear understanding of who are my virtue ethics uh, teachers or scholars, I have a very clear understanding of who are my people who teach jur jurisprudence, my, my theology. Um, uh, like I have my hierarchy of the people who are above me to make sure I, you know, I don't, I don't step out of line. Um, but at the same rate, it's like, there isn't this like clear obedience, right, uh, to them, that ultimately kind of, I think it's more of a Protestant kind of notion, in that my obedience is really contingent on my awareness of God, uh, wherever I am, um, and really elevating the scholars for questions that I need really only comes in technical answers like my inheritance or uh, dividing my inheritance or marriage or um, uh, not disseminating, but like, you know, discerning justice, right and wrong, um, if there's a conflict between two people. Um, so anyway, I, I, yeah. I, I've, I've always tilted more towards protestantism a little bit more 
Um, because I just I don't know. I'm a free I'm a free rider at the end of the day. Like I love I love to be independent. And I love to be free. Um, and sometimes the yeah, this of, is America. <laughs> this is America, baby. That's sort right. The culture that we yeah. no, I mean like I I'd, I'd say like American virtues um, and sort of mythology sort of uh, align a lot more closely with the Protestant beliefs. But I I think that some somewhat of a baby thrown out with the bathwater thing could happen, could have happened in some of the, you know, Protestant um, traditions. So like, I think it's, even if you are Protestant, I think it would be a value to supplement with like Catholic or Orthodox thinkers. I mean, this is kind of one of the arguments that I, 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 I have in my arsenal of why I'm not a Protestant, an Eastern Orthodox, or a Muslim, is that I think that one, an analogy, argu arguments by analogy are often, you know, pretty weak, but but this one is strangely appealing. I think that it, it seems plausible that the universe is is ordered by a single first principle, and this cosmic harmony parallels or should parallel the harmony of the church which therefore would mean that it would be governed by a single first principle or Pope and kind of like flowing downward. Um, and, and, and then the other thing that I would add is that, you know, I think that if we are at the point where we're discussing revelation and if we all agree that it's it, God would provide revelation to be in contact with us by either his goodness or love or whatever, if we're at that point, we're discussing revelation, it would seem that, it's a pretty short step to say that, okay, so in order to have revelation, we need some sort of a definitive teaching that culminates in a single authoritative figure that can, you know, put the hammer down on this is doctrine and this is not, as opposed to kind of like where you have in the Eastern Orthodox Church, a serious, a bunch of disagreements over what constitutes doctrine I mean, they are really struggling right now. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church really struggles on whether or not to rebaptize. They really struggle on divorce and birth control. I mean, it's kind of like um, a doctrinal nightmare over there. And that just seems like it just doesn't seem very plausible that God would want that for his true his true faith. It seems like he would have some sort of system to at least keep the guardrails close. And so that that's why I find Catholicism the most appealing, or at least one of the reasons why. Yeah, that's yeah, really I, interesting. I think I think Muslims we've like we we live in a post-caliphate world, which is the first time. Mm -hmm. I think it's the first time, maybe it's happened previously in, in Muslim history, where we don't we no longer have a central authority. Um Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think we're like Muslims right now are living in a diaspora or like quote unquote diaspora because the, mm -hmm. after the Ottoman empire, you know, there, there was this structure. And I think a lot of, there was a lot of reformist movements that came about later on who were saying, well, we need to have structure. We need to have order. Um, but given the nation state model and just colonialism and a, a lot of other factors um, that was abolished. And um, I think a lot of Muslims are still trying to figure out how to adapt. And, um, and it's also very interesting because this is the first time, I think, in Muslim history where you have Muslim societies 
uh, not living as minorities because Muslims, when they when they first expanded out of the Arabian Peninsula, um, they were minorities, but they were rulers as minorities, ruling over a majority other kind of sect. But Muslims right now, we're living as minorities in societies where we're not the the dominant uh, uh, class or or you know rulers or leaders, and um, I think it's opened the door for lots of innovation within Muslim communities to figure out how to preserve our faith in very unique and dynamic or versatile uh, environments. Um, and I don't know if this is a place where I can kind of explain my title, The Pirate Bay Clay, but please give me permission if you want to. Yeah, go for go, it. Go for it. Do, do, a, do a business plug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the word bay at the end, obviously, I've taken like the very famous website that I'm sure almost everybody knows, or maybe not the younger kids know them anymore, but um, don't look it up if, if you want. But it's it's the piratebay.com where you can pretty much torrent and download like, you know, movies and videos, whatever. So to play on words, I've kept the pirate, but the bay part, I've changed the A into an E. And in the E, um, it's a, uh, when you say bay in Turkish, it means governor. It was it meant governor in the time of the Ottoman Empire. And to be a governor in the Ottoman Empire, you obviously had some sort of spiritual and worldly allegiance to the to the caliph, right? So um, being a pirate, you know, quote unquote pirate, you you um, you don't have allegiance to the queen's navy or the king's navy. You're pretty much on your own boat, uh, uh, traveling the world, right? With pretty much the only allegiance that you have is is yourself. Right, so I, I like to think of a lot of Muslims in the world that we are, we're 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 pirates, you know, that are uh, 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 with a spiritual connection to, to God, but um, maybe lacking that that worldly connection to like a caliph. Um, so that that's kind of the the general idea, and I th I think there's a lot of other things that you can kind of derive from the whole like pirate idea, because I think as pirates or quote unquote pirates, I'm not actually a pirate, guys, but like. You get the idea, and that you're you're taking things around you, things that work, right? Um, and I think that's kind of my goal in life, and that's kind of the tagline of you know the Pirate Bay is helping others find their treasure. It's not just about me just doing this all for myself, but also trying to spread good and um, help others that are also you know seeking to find some meaning or purpose in the world. So that's the. <laughs> That's the thirty or one minute pitch. I like that. I mean, Augustine's got this. Augustine's got this famous passage in the City of God. I think it's book seven or eight, where he's talking about the pagans, and he's he 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 pulls some scripture, um, where the the Israelites like looted the gold from the Egyptians. Once the Egyptians like, I I don't know. It's 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 some famous part portion in scripture where like the Israelites take the gold and use it to build like a temple to God or something after they defeated the Israelites or the Egyptians or something. And Augustine says like, this is the parallel to pagan philosophy where we have to look at the pagans and other traditions and take what's true in them and integrate it into the Christian faith. And so I really mm -hmm. resonate with, I, I, I like that, that image um, of you kind of being like a renegade. I, th I think it's good. I mean, I think it's, especially in modern times, I think this has even more of like an esoteric meaning that we can kind of laugh about where it feels often like we're in the world and we're just 
loners kind of going on our own um, our own ship with maybe our little crew, but you know it's true. <laughs> we'll we'll call you Captain Jack. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I mean, Alizar Macadar, the last passage of After Virtue. I think I've told you this before. Is um where he says that it's in the communities where you preserve the virtues. Mm. So it's in like, you know, it's in the small business you create. It's in the organizations, the reading groups, it's in the family unit where the virtues and the traditions are preserved. And I think that is another serious common ground between the faith traditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Clay, for, for bringing us in, man. This is, this has been great. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you guys for joining. We're almost, we're approaching three hours. So I guess we can. I know. I know. This is probably a good place to, to stop. Put a pin in it for there. Brought up so many. We should do like a whole show just on Constantinople, Istanbul, that whole. Oh my God. Oh, damn. Yeah. Just that city. Mm-hmm. But uh, all right. Very well, cool. I will hit stop on the recording. Thank you guys.